Welcome to Movie Left, a movie review podcast. I'm your host, Anthony Montrulo, uh, joined here by my co-host, Comrade Dracula. Comrade, what's going on? Yeah, I'm doing great. Uh, so I I didn't get a chance to rewatch the last film review we did last week, which we haven't released yet, which you're gonna, we're going to do. Uh, but I did Future. just rewatch Glorious Bastards right before we started recording so it's very fresh in my mind. Um, so yeah, that's a good time. Yeah, so we will be reviewing the 2009 uh, Quentin Tarantino masterpiece, Inglorious Bastards. Uh, it's been 10 years, which is crazy, because I still remember seeing that movie in theaters. Uh, and it really does not feel like 10 years ago. But uh, yeah, we're getting old. But uh, it, so it, yeah, this movie, um, uh, you know, I... It's controversial opinion. I think this is Quentin Tarantino's best movie. And I know a lot of people will be like, oh, that's so, no way, Pulp Fiction or like Reservoir Dogs. Like, I think this movie crystallizes everything that's great about Tarantino. And it's, he just takes it to the next level in this movie. And we're going to break down kind of all the different elements of, of the way this movie is structured. We were talking a little before we went on air about that. But, uh, and, and, you know, once we start going through it, I kind of want to go through it. Um, chapter by chapter because it's kind of split into five chapters which is a really interesting kind of story yeah, not really kind of it's very split oh, no very no very much say chapter one chapter two. it's essential it's essentially like five to six scenes this entire movie five to six insanely long insanely well acted scenes but um yeah it, it's um so so not to to think that we're just fanboying out of nowhere because uh you know once upon a time in hollywood is coming out or just came out and that's getting good reviews uh the the indiewire critics uh survey just named this film and glorious bastards his best film and that was just published six hours ago uh yeah, so it, it's, there's <laughs> Yeah, there's a bit of a bit of uh, renewal hype about the film too. And it takes a little time too. I mean, you need at least ten years to kind of go like, how's it hold up? You know, digest it. Um, yeah. But yeah, this was what, one quick observation right off the bat uh, I had is, you know, he was known for very long drawn out conversations that seemingly had nothing to do with the plot, but actually often did. It was just what's the subtext of what they're talking about? You know, what are they? Yeah beating around the bush that they're really getting to. And some screenwriters can't stand dialogue like that because they don't get it. Or they're just like, well, where's well, the they're just not as good at it as he is. It's yeah, really hard yeah. to do right, you know? And I lost him with the Kill Bill movies because it kind of lost sight of that. And it kind of became more style over substance. And what dialogue Very, scenes there yeah. were didn't have the, the you know, even the kind of like, well, what's really going on here feeling of, say, Reservoir Dogs or Pulp Fiction. Um and then he did my personal favorite film, uh, which was part of the double feature did with Robert Rodriguez, which was his half was Death Proof, which he says is his least favorite film he ever did. And it's actually <laughs> my most favorite because it's kind of where he went back to those extended long scenes of dialogue where you're kind of like something's going on. Something's going on. These very long, tense moments, even when the dialogue's not uh, tense in nature, it's building for so long. You're like, what's happening here that I'm missing? Right. And he really got back to that in this film. Um, and you have, I mean, just, just the opening is maybe the most tense opening of a film where you, you don't know what the stakes are. You start to think you know, and then you find out and you're like on the fucking edge of your seat the whole time. I actually watched the whole movie, not today, but most recently, with no subtitles at all. 
And that opening scene is still like the most cohesive, suspenseful, like, you mm-hmm. know where it's going and you just keep, you can't fucking stand it moment. Uh, and it goes on for 15 minutes, 20 minutes almost. Um, the one thing that's different about Inglorious Bastards is it, like you said, it's it's really just only six scenes. There's no transitional scenes. One of the, the things that are hallmarks of his films, there's always very long scenes of dialogues in cars, you know, or or just people are driving from one place to another. So there's these transitional moments of driving somewhere. Um, there's only one scene in this movie where people are talking in a car. It's only three lines of dialogue and it's five seconds long. Everything else happens static in one place or another or jump cuts back and forth. There's no transitional yeah. moments at all. Uh, we're, we're totally outside the outside of, of cars, which is very unlike his, his, his film, you know, death proof, especially, um, Inglorious Bastards feels like an action movie when you think about it and then you watch it and it actually feels like it could be like a dinner play because so much doesn't move at all. Yeah. With, with a few, you know, notable except a few scenes that are that are incredibly uh, violent and action heavy for like two minutes or you know, two minutes or less. And that but, the you know, like 10 minutes of dialogue building up to like two minutes of fucking insane, you know, gore fest. But other than that, no, it, it is a very. I think that's what I love about this movie is that like, so Tarantino, you can kind of break his career down into like phases. So you get the kind of first phase, the the phase that he's most known for the Pulp Fiction, the Reservoir Dogs, Jackie Brown, the, the classic Tarantino phase. And everyone, you know, loves those movies to one you know degree or another. Um, the you, end of four, the last, the last segment of four rooms is definitely falls in that. Yeah, yeah, no, I, 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 I'm talking loosely, you know, true romance technically also, but like, you know, just that whole, and that era, that it. Didn't, didn't count. He didn't direct that. So, yeah. Although, you know, one of his, my favorite movies of his, he didn't direct is from dusk till dawn. And I think that's like one of his, his unsung, uh, great movies that As I actually actor. really would have. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, he wrote it too. That's the no, thing. I it's know. like, I would have, I, I, just... I would have loved to have seen him direct that. It's, um, it's an interesting choice he made to. Uh, maybe just because there were so many like Aztec and Mexican influences, they wanted to let Robert Rodriguez direct. But um, no, but so you have that first phase. Uh, you have the uh, second wave of Tarantino, which is kind of the Kill Bill, Death Proof, that era, which I'm really largely not a fan of. Not, you know, not including Death Proof. I'm just the Kill Bill, especially I, that that kind of like phase of his career. It, it's not that they're bad movies they're just not for me like you know it's just not my <laughs> i don't think it's peak tarantino i think you like you were saying it's it's a lot more style over substance it's just he is a amazing visual filmmaker and i think he kind of got overindulgent in that period uh and he was just like i'm gonna make every movie just the most insane visual spectacle that i can and he kind of let the thread go in terms of like his plotting and his dialogue, which is really his bread and butter. And I think that he's in this kind of third phase that he's in right now. I think it's his best work because I think he's combined the amazing, you know, linguistics and, and dialogue and plotting from his first phase of his career with those stylized visuals and kind of directorial flourishes that he, you know, developed in the second phase of his career. And it's kind sure. of, that's well, what you're getting now with the, absolutely you know, glorious and Django and if, hateful eight. If uh, Inglorious Bastards is a dinner play set in six different scenes, then you know hateful eight is a dinner play set in one scene, 
for three hours, <laughs> you know, my, <laughs> minus the stagecoach ride, which is, you know, again, a you know, a conversation yeah. in a car, so to speak. So, uh, Funny yeah, as no, conversation, I, but yeah, that, that whole movie is like one fucking scene, but yeah, basically. Right. Well, and he shot at 70 millimeter indoors, which is just like, get, there you go. There's the self-indulgent. <laughs> <laughs> I did see it, by the way, in 70 millimeters. I, I drove like like 50 minutes to a theater just to watch it in like 70 millimeter, yeah. <laughs> you know, full fucking widescreen. And it was like, oh, this is awesome. This is a great, great fucking movie. But um, but I think that's why I love Inglorious Bastards so much. And I, I love his I, I, I'd say like among my three favorite Tarantino movies are the three most recent movies he's released this uh, Django and, and Hateful Eight. And I know and it's like. Uh, he's synth- he synthesized all the shit that he's good at and he's you know he certainly leans into his indulgences like that people that drive people crazy you know the really overly long dialogue the really overly long you know opening credits crawls like in hateful eight the fucking opening credits call crawls goes on for 20 minutes and that's you know his homage to the classic you know spaghetti westerns which would have those opening credit crawls where they would just show you know, shot after shot of these like beautiful, you know, Monument Valley vistas and shit like that, just because it's like, well, we're out here. We might as well fucking, you know, get our money's worth. Um, but but, you know, he can get away with it. Not a lot of directors can get away with that shit, but he can get away with it because once you get into the fucking movie and you look at the the script he's laid out and you look at the the people he's slotted into these roles, it's like the shit he got out of people like Christoph Waltz, who was an un- unknown actor you know, more or less to American audiences, at least before this movie and really hasn't done much since this movie. I mean, he's done a couple little roles here and there, but like, you got to wonder if he's as good as, as we thought he was, or if it's just like Tarantino managed to pull this amazing work out of this guy, you know, like you between this and, and Django, it's like this, he's fucking amazing in both of these movies. And I, I really wonder and I'm not saying he's not a good. He's he's amazing in this movie. He won. I, he won or was nominated for best supporting actor. I, I'm not. I can't remember exactly off the top of my head. But, um, it, it you know I I I wonder how much of it was like he was a good actor that Tarantino elevated into a great actor, or if, you know, maybe he just hasn't had a great role selection since those movies. I don't know. <sighs> You know, it's hard to say. I don't know the actor that well. Um, as say some of the actors that um, Paul Thomas Anderson's pulled great performances out of. I mentioned recently on a cast how uh, PTA kind of wrote the the Freudian super ego version of every uh, B list actor that port- was portraying, uh, you know, a you know awful human being who then gave a, an amazing performance in the role. So I I really couldn't say with with that actor, but. You know, he's he's getting more indulgent, I think, to try to say, you know, there's certain things about the medium of film that you can't do with digital video. And Inglourious Bastards becomes such a a hyper reflexive version of that, where literally the 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 art house cinema itself becomes a weapon of mass destruction against Nazis, Uh, not only in that, you know, the, the doors get barred. Uh, and everyone gets burned up, but then the the the, the film by literal itself, film, yeah, right. Well, you know, also by the the film itself, the silver nitrate film that we yeah, obviously yeah. no longer use. But then that she cuts in her own avant garde uh, revenge uh, rebel cinema reel to let them all know <laughs> what's about to happen. So the the medium of cinema being used as a weapon 
to, you know, let them all know that they're about to die. And then as the, the torch that burns them at the same time like that, no one else would write that <laughs> because they'd yeah. go, that's ridiculous. And Tarantino's like, no, I went to film school to learn how to fucking load magazines of film. And now I'm going to make a Nazi or, you know, uh, grindhouse film that uses the, the medium and the, 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 the actual art house of cinema as the tools of destruction for Hitler. <laughs> <laughs> yeah well then that's the thing that like only tarantino can get away with is it's like this movie about nazi occupied france and he has in it uh you know a, a plot uh, that's central to a movie theater he has a character who uh it, was a film critic before he joined the army like he has so many little flourishes where it's like he has like a, a super long discussion about the you know german cinema from the 30s that plays into the backstory that uh hickox gives later in the movie it's like such a such the, a terrence you know, flourish, you know? A, yeah yeah the spy is a yeah a, that's a, a film actress the with the you know the main bad one of the main <laughs> bad guys is of course goebbels a filmmaker um yeah so, so yeah this, it's just so tarantino which i love um <laughs> yeah so yeah so uh i want to get into each of the individual chapters because i think we'll, we'll have good discussions about each one um so obviously the first of the five chapters was once upon a time in nazi in nazi occupied france um and literally that chapter is just the opening 20 plus minute scene which is you know one of the i i i, I think it's probably one of the best opening scenes in, in a movie in the 21st century I mean, it, it's it's just incredible. Like the, the the way it's put together, like you said, it works, you know, with or without subtitles. Just the uh, the way that you, when you first saw this movie, that that Landa kind of lures you in, where it's like, yeah, he's a Nazi, but he seems like he's kind of friendly with this guy, and he's just trying to, you know, he like he makes it see he does a very convincing job of being like, look, I'm just here to cross my eyes and dot my t's, and you know, I don't want to, and, and like he's like jovial with him, and he gives him a glass of milk he pulls out his pipe it's like very disarming sure sure and he means it to be to a point and then he continues it to the point where it's so uncomfortable and he does this several times he does this um you know with shoshana later on and you don't know if he knows if she, if he knows who she really is or not yeah and then he does it later on um you know he does it several times he does it four times really Right. And and yeah, you yeah. can tell he enjoys using pleasantries and formality to torture people. And mm -hmm. that's what's so compelling about his character, because if he was just purely evil, you'd be like, no, I can't do it. You know, if he was if he was ineffectual, you know, because there's one scene where he becomes very violent, you finally see him break out of his his control zone. But he's got this reputation and you've never seen him actually do anything. Right. So so that yeah, setting yeah. up setting up that pattern of who he is with that opening scene of being menacing and pleasant at the same time. Uh, they didn't know he didn't know if they, they were going to do the film because they couldn't find someone who could play the role the way they were looking for, uh, you know, until they found. Uh, well, I didn't I don't think found him, but they Christopher uh, Waltz was who's there. He, we, uh, he had the audition for it. So he for a while was trying to get DiCaprio to do it, but he just they they couldn't find the character. DiCaprio, I guess, couldn't find. I mean, also, DiCaprio doesn't speak four languages. So it's a, it's a really tough sell to not have a non -germ, native German speaker as like the Jew hunter, or, like one of the heads head inquisitors of the SS, you know. So I think I think he really fucking lucked out finding. Well, if you remember that like uh, African 
Blood Diamond movie that DiCaprio oh, did. Oh, God, his fucking accent. He can't do other accents to save his life. Well, I, see, I will, I, will, I will disagree slightly because his Boston accent in The Departed is fucking <laughs> hilariously. Because <laughs> it's, it's over the top and bad. fucking but... <laughs> Boston accent. It's the easiest accent to copy in the world. Oh, man. I love that movie. But um, so, yeah. Uh, you know, and and but the way in that scene that he turns on a fucking dime is like that was just like a the first time I saw that movie that movie that like chills your fucking spine, where he's talking to him and he, and he just turns on a dime. He's like, you're you you know you're harboring enemies of the state, are you not? And his like expression just totally, all the fucking levity goes out of his face. I was like, damn, this fucking dude is like, you know that that moment you knew the kind of movie you were in for because it it, it almost. I, I think the first time I watched it, I was almost sitting there thinking like, oh, the scene's kind of dragging. It was like 20 minutes of like them just bullshitting. Like, where is this going? And then you realize that he fucking, you know, it switches like that. And then you realize that they're all hiding under the floorboards. And you're like, Jesus right. Christ. Like, this and is that's, fucking. <laughs> that's the big, the big uh, change because so many of his cues have a jarring musical uh, number associated with it. Even, yeah. you know, like the, the you know, um, like black exploitation, yeah. The the guitar, guitar, guitar. <laughs> yeah, it totally takes you out of the moment because it's comical. But this this you know revelation, there's no music at all. There's no music in that whole first scene until the very very end of it. Once he once they go back to start speaking French again as a ruse, and he walks out and he's like goodbye, ladies, and then the you know yeah. the gunmen come in. Um, but you know, you got to know when to be subtle. And, and that whole first scene feels very grounded in realism. The, the actor who plays the farmer, I, I can't remember his name, but I don't think I've seen oh, anything else, which added to the realism where you don't, you don't feel like that's an actor. You feel like that's a real farmer. Um, they almost got in, in Gene Reno to play that, uh, you know, the Leon, the professional, but he, I guess he wasn't able to commit to it, but he, they kind of got oh, a guy that you, looks you like mean, him. You mean Jean Reno? Yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah. Gene, Gene Reno. My super, super Americanized. Yeah, fucking Gene speaking Reno. Speaking of fucking Boston accents. Hey, you know, Hackensack. Gene Reno from uh, the prof- Leon, the professional. Um, but no, but yeah, you're right. He seemed almost like a real farmer because he's just a guy we've never seen. He, he looked the part and he was he just he was also tremendous in that role. I mean, he his. Oh, yeah. Well, was- in rewatching it, it reminded me a lot of the opening scene of Blade Runner 2049 where you've got this oh, farmer. Batista. Yeah. Yeah. With, with you got this farmer minding his own business, living his life. And then here comes this fucking Gestapo guy in a, in a high collared <laughs> trench coat to sit down and have a very pleasant <laughs> conversation that precedes a, a huge moment of violence like you you know why i'm really here but let me you know like oh no i i prefer to you know uh, have an empty stomach to the worst part of the day you know just like all those little things that they, like it, it feels very similar yeah. obviously one scene's much longer uh and, and one actress hammered up and the other one's much more reserved but um those two scenes back to back i'm like that's pretty much the same premise here uh, of what they're doing and the the subtext yeah, no, for sure. So the interesting thing, one of the interesting things about that scene is at the end when, you know, after the, they shoot up the floorboards and kill everyone in the family except for Shoshana and she gets away and is running uh, and, and and Landa has has a pretty good beat on her where he could definitely shoot her with, with the, I think it was a Ruger that he had uh, and, he, and he decides not to. That, it's a really interesting moment for his character 
and I, and I'm not really quite sure what it means. I think, I, you know, I, th- I, I think part of him just loves the chase. He doesn't want to have to, he doesn't want to feel like it's, he, lo- I think he loves the hunt more than anything. And I think, you know, yeah, ultimately well, it's funny because it, it ends up being, he says it in his dialogue where he's, he's using the, you know, the anti-Semitic trope of Jews thinking like rats or being like vermin, mm-hmm. which was, was very common in Nazi propaganda was to dehumanize Jewish people by comparing them to an animal we find repulsive. But he even says like, but there's no reason why they've never done it to you. They're no different than a squirrel. Right. And I don't have any problem with them. It's just part of my job is to hunt them. Right. So he's almost sort of kind of, I think they're trying to say, well, he, he understands the hatred and thinks it's irrational, but doesn't let that get between him and wanting to hunt people. That's the kind mm-hmm. of person he is, right? Which doesn't yeah. matter. That's still a, a monster. Right? Well, that's the thing. He, <laughs> that's he's, yeah, he's a fucking psycho at heart, and yeah. he and he he gets off on 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 the hunt, and he gets off on you know making people uh, slowly like he. I think he loves like just putting the fear of God into people, where he's just like you know maybe I know, maybe I don't know. Like 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 you were saying with all the times that he do, he does that in the movie, where he's like essentially you know teasing that he that he may or may not know you know what's going on because this is a movie of deception it's a movie of like people trying to you know uh, uh, imitate other people or pretending they're someone they aren't and he always seemingly knows what's going on and like the big question i think a lot of people have is like did he know in that and i'm jumping ahead a little bit but did he know in that scene uh where they're having having the the brunch or whatever it is uh that he was talking to Shoshana. Like that's the really interesting, you know, theoretically he's never seen her face. So it's hard to say, but he, the way he, you know, he even orders milk. So it's very like, he orders milk much, for her. He doesn't order milk. Yeah, for himself. that's true. He yeah. Orders yeah it for true. her. So yes, he definitely knew he was a meticulous record keeper. He lays out all of his notes in his little ink pen and does all this shit just for show to let you know that he knows but, everything. But how would he have known? That, the question is like, how would he have recognized her? Because he he didn't really see her. And, and she's, when got she a, was, she's got a fake passport, right? She's got fake papers. You think he doesn't know who makes the fake papers in, in that town or any town maybe. under under his occupation? Like he would, he knows. He asks her questions and she's like, oh, my aunt and da da da. Well, he, he probably he already knew the answers. He makes it questions. seem like he knows. Yeah. So, but then the question is, why wouldn't he bust her? But I guess maybe he wants to let her string it out a little bit more. Maybe at that point he was already formulating his end, his end game. But sure. let's, well, I don't want to jump too far ahead. But sure. well, let's, uh, yeah. So that was the first chapter, uh, Once Upon a Time in Nazi Occupied France. Um, so right from there, uh, it's, it, uh, cuts to uh, the second chapter, which is Inglorious Bastards, uh, which is some time later. I, I you know, I, I would say several years at least later. Uh, I think they say four years. Do they say four? Okay. Well, they don't say how long it's the, 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 the third act. They say it's four years later. So we're left to sort of assume that sometime between then. Well, no, actually, because these talk, they're talking about the, the um, you know, the an armada. They don't say D-Day, but they say, well, you've heard about well, they the say they're on the beaches. No, they say they're on the beaches, so it's got to be D-Day. Yeah, I, I think it's earlier than that, because he doesn't say they're... Does he say on the beaches? I think he, I think he says, I, you've heard about the Armada coming up or something to that effect. Well, no, we, he says, I, at some point, they say with the Americans on the beaches, it would do a lot to boost morale if, if you showed up to the premiere. Or I, I, it would do... Hitler says, I, it would do a lot to boost 
morale if I showed up to the premiere. So I would assume that's right. D-Day. But that's that still could be four years later. The first thing with Brad Pitt, he says, you've heard like, you know, rumors of this Armada. Like that's, there could like be pre-D-Day. Because yeah. um, that it seems like, you know, with, with if Hitler Some time was still passes, in Paris, yeah. it would be very, very soon after D-Day. Because yeah, otherwise they wouldn't be that. They wouldn't be still embarrassed, but well, but so you know what else also like with that opening scene is clearly like everyone being initiated into the bastards. And when we come back to the bastards, they've, they've been clearly there for been a while. doing it for a while. Exactly. So yeah, I so it could be even like true. one or two years later. Yeah. So we're, it's, and then, it's, it's yeah. somewhere between 41 and 44. That's yeah. all we really need to know. Yeah. So, yeah. So in any event, in that scene, we get the intro to the inglorious bastards where Brad Pitt just scenery chewing his ass off. Just amazing performance from him in this movie. Yeah, you know, and it's not uh, even that pointy of a performance. It almost seems a little bit. Oh, it's over the top and goofy, but I, I just like. Yeah, it has. There's there's a quality to it though. It's hard to describe, but it. Um, I think they were trying to establish his character as like a like a comedic Brad Pitt that people hadn't seen before at the time, mm-hmm. and he's done some kind of goofier role since then. But uh, you know, they they almost don't even show the faces of the people he's talking to in their back out background characters at best until the, the final act and then you know even still only two of them so i think they kind of wanted to sort of ease you into this idea that brad pitt's this sort of dumb arkansas captain who is way overconfident and but just very determined about wanting to kill some nazis that's that's lieutenant i'll, I'll have you know he, he, oh he lieutenant, you lieutenant. if you, you miss mistitled him um no but so yeah I, I mean he's also clearly like a parody of these like just uber american like 1800s frontiersmen uh you know he says he's like the descendant of the mountain man jim britcher or something like it, it it's a it's just a ridiculously well, over the top sure, you know but the, the character is a parody of all the john for john wayne bullshit military movies that tarantino yeah, always you know of all the genres of films that tarantino loves he hated john wayne john ford you know yeah. for, for just the hyper masculine bullshit that was you know just kind of the the antithesis of a of a civil society yeah no for sure this is and this is a lot in a lot of ways he, he says it's his uh like guys on a mission movie, like, you know, in, in, in the spirit of, of the movies he actually liked from that era. So I, I think that's certainly uh, what the bastards represent. And even though yeah. they're not in the movie a lot, they have very limited screen time. I, I forget. It's some crazy, like 18 minutes of screen time or whatever it is, but they do drive the entire narrative of the movie. Sure. So it's a really interesting. Well, I got to ask you, have you ever seen the original movie from 78? No, I, I haven't. Is, is oh. it, Have you seen it? it's it's like an episode of the a-team it's terrible <laughs> it's not, it, there's like there's a bunch and it's of, not it's not like a remake it's just he t- used the title because he enjoyed that movie right it's a remake but it's still like here's some guys on like a, a a mission to blow up the ridge bridge over the river Kwai. like it's inconsequential uh-huh. right whereas tarantino's movie is like oh we're actually gonna kill hitler it's totally <laughs> revisionist and and just full of bombast that this other yeah. thing didn't but I mean, there are some good guys on a mission movies. There's, you know, is it the not the Magnificent Seven's fucking amazing. I love yeah, that or the uh, uh, what was the sequel, Guns of the Navarone? Um, of what? Uh, Wait, what? Guns and Na- Guns. You know, the line from Pulp Fiction. I'm the Guns of the Navarone. That was the sequel to Magnificent Seven. 
Oh, I believe okay. I, I could be totally wrong, I, but yeah, I, I, I'm not as well versed on like westerns and like I, I, I've seen. Oh, no, 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 it was a like western. Really... It was it was the one where there it's a bunch of guys that drop behind enemy lines, World War II, to blow up the Nazi dam. And there's there's a scene with Harrison Ford where they like they set off the charges, is and it, they're just like waiting for it to go off, and it doesn't go off. And they're like, oh well, I guess we'll just wait here to die, and then it like goes off later. And they're like, oh, now we can get out, and they just. Yeah, <laughs> That's better. Like that movie's way better. Those two movies are way, way better than the original Inglorious Bastards. Inglourious I've only Bastards. seen parts, but just watch the watch the trailer for the original Inglorious Bastards. You're like, oh, this is like a shitty episode of the A Team, uh, but <laughs> set in World War II. It's really, really bad. So it, it's interesting. That's he decided to, to to make a remake of a film. Uh, it, it's really nothing like it. I mean, it's it, better. Yeah, it, it's it's. I think it's 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 in the spirit of that movie. I don't know if it's really a re- like it it's like you were saying it seems like the plot's completely he just wrote this script and was kind of like oh this is kind of like Inglorious Bastards. This yeah, other I, really obscure movie I like, you know. For sure. I think they had to like blow up a train or something and that's this mm. as close as it is to the plot of this movie. He actually ironically enough he actually put the director of the original Inglorious Bastards in this movie in the theater scene. He's like one of the Nazis that gets burned alive. Although I think his scene oh, got cut cute. for time. Yeah, I think they don't. But, um, they all are technically in one giant establishing shot, getting burned alive and shot by machines yeah. at the same well, time. Well, I think so. he had a close up at some point, ah, but like gotcha. they had to cut it for whatever. But um, which is kind of a dick move considering you put him in, but whatever. Um, but yeah, so uh, we get the in in the Inglorious Bastards chapter, we get the intro from Brad Pitt, you know, where he he demands everyone gives him a hundred Nazi scalps. Uh, and then you get the scene of Hitler interrogating uh, one of the privates that came back after after his interaction with them. And then that he, they use that to kind of pretty light uh, interrogation sh- considering it's Hitler. <laughs> yeah, I was kind of surprised. Like, oh, he's, he's actually not uh, <laughs> not, not really uh, grilling this guy as much as I expected no. him to. Well, he had his cape but, on. Uh, he had his fucking red Hitler <laughs> cape. Which is just hilarious. He was getting dude. he was getting a portrait done. It looked like a like a really obnoxious giant portrait in his uh his yeah, study or whatever it. being done. Um, but yeah, so he interrogates this guy and they use that as the framing device to show you kind of like how the bastards operate when they ambush a squadron. And basically what they do is they kill almost everybody. They line up the survivors and then they try to get, you know, Intel out of the uh, remaining Nazis. And if they don't give it to them, they uh, call in uh, Donnie Donowitz, AKA the bear Jew, who is just, his Eli Roth, who's not an actor, is so fucking over the top and hilarious in this movie. His 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 speaking of Boston accents, his fucking <laughs> just <laughs> Teddy fucking ball game. Wait, yacht on that? Like it's so absurd, and nobody fucking even the most obnoxious Bostonian doesn't talk like that. But it works for this movie somehow. Like the tone of this movie, it fits perfectly. Well, he always I, have I a one liner that came out of nowhere that sounded so different than the. You know the 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 cadence of the accents of everyone else in the scene that you just be like, what is uh-huh. he just? You just like sitting there waiting to throw it out there. <laughs> oh yeah, or, or like where he's like, come on, let's go, batter up on deck, two hits. I hit you, you hit the ground. I'm like, this is just ridiculous. This is fucking. I just laugh every time because he's so. Over- I think he just really loves like getting the opportunity to ham it up because he's behind the camera all the time. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, for whatever anyone thinks of Eli Roth's work, I'm not a huge fan of of like that kind of like torture porn horror, but uh, he's not a bad director like visually. So I, I yeah. So it's cool to see him get a chance to kind of fucking ham it up in front of the camera. Um, 
but yeah, so that scene's amazing. Uh, also features a director's cameo from Quentin Tarantino, where he's gonna he's the first body to get scalped um, among like the dead Nazi uh, soldiers. Nice. They they use like a like a dummy of, or, or they might have even just put a prosthetic on his head, but he's the first uh, Nazi scalp. But yeah, so that scene, uh, that's that's really that entire chapter. Is it's just the intro to this amazing uh, fucking awesome group, uh, the bastards, who are all these like American Jews uh, who are sent behind enemy lines to kill a bunch of Nazis on the on the DL. Uh, they also introduce Hugo Stiglitz with that awesome, uh, anachronistic fucking, uh, guitar, you know, and then that little like Samuel L. Jackson voiceover thing, uh, which, which I really enjoyed. That's another great little Tarantino flourish. Was it, was, they do a voiceover for, uh, from Sam Jackson for both his little intro and the the silver nitrate, the nitrate film. Yeah. 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 Gotcha. Yeah, and then they yeah, and then they show you know the bastards recruit, which another great Brad Pitt uh, performance where he's like super like embarrassed and kind of almost like fanboying out. He's like, you know, I just really we're big fans of your work, and uh, when it comes to killing Nazis, and uh, how'd, you, how'd you like to come? Up? Oh yeah, but he's got to he's got to knock him down and be like, well, but you know, you're still an amateur, but we're giving you the opportunity to turn turn pro. Like, yeah. oh man, just whip your dicks out, come on. <laughs> But yeah, yeah, Brad Pitt's fucking great in this movie. Really the unsung hero. <laughs> Obviously, Christoph Waltz got the, and I looked it up, by the way, he did actually win for Best Supporting Actor for this movie. Uh, and he's getting all, he gets all the accolades, but I think, you know, Brad Pitt's one of the unsung heroes of this movie just for keeping it. He, he really maintains that tone throughout. And I think you kind of need that with a movie like this because you, you're talking about really fucking heavy shit, you know, Nazis. Well, it's a comedy. I mean, the movie itself well, is a, a comedy. Exactly, it's 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 insane. Is it's the the tone of this movie is it's certainly a comedy, but it's also insanely violent and insanely serious. It's a very weird line that very few directors can kind of pull off. But I but I think he just pulls it off masterfully right. in this movie. Well, you had to. I mean, the opening scene is is very dramatic, heavy, very serious because you got to establish what we're really talking about here. Uh, yeah. And then every every section that happens after that gets more and more absurd, kind of dials it back to the realm of realism with, you know, the underground, um, you know, basement bar scene to kind of, you know, begin act three, kind of have to reprise that this is really dangerous and people are going to die. But, you know, every every other part of the movie is a fucking madcap slapstick you know i oh, can't yeah. believe this is real and even landa is fucking hilarious in this movie like landa has just a hilarious performance at, at times in this movie you know and he's just right. being really over the top and i'm sure why that's why they were worried about casting because if they got it wrong people would be really fucking offended right like, yeah, yeah. This, is a, this is a nazi revenge movie um you know you'd think there's no way to fuck that up right but if you if you make the you know if you make the character too revolting uh then it's just like people get triggered by it understandably so like they just know it's too much it's too much if it's too comedic then it's like they're just being glib sympathetic right or you know if he's got like a real internal conflict you start to humanize the character and you're like i don't want to fucking you know have a, a guy get humanized and then see his forehead get carved with a swastika. Like I, I want to hate the guy 
and he's the comedic relief and I want to see him get revenged, right? Or someone yeah, revenge exactly. people upon his body. So uh, that's that's the line they walk perfectly. Like you were saying is like they <laughs> Landa is like hilarious in this movie, but he's never likable. And that's that's the real that's the real kind of like tightrope that they walk this entire movie is that he never becomes a likable or relatable or sympathetic character like in the end with, with, with what happens to him you still want to see him get fucking you know tortured like at the end of this movie because he's such a reprehensible person but he he does manage to add a lot of levity and you know sure there's really it, only weird... one two many every character in this movie is a one-dimensional character except for Tashona. And, you know, her her sort of maybe lover who is the projectionist in the theater. Uh, and you they Gregory, never really. Yeah. yeah, they never really define that. And they kind of implied like maybe so, it's an open relationship. Um, but she's the only person who we see real depth to at all uh, throughout the film. Like everyone else is just really just they are on the surface and that's as deep as they go. You know, what's interesting is that apparently Tarantino has a cut of this movie that's like over four hours long. And this movie already is almost three hours long. It's a pretty long of course movie. He of course, he, he's got a seven hour cut somewhere. No, I know. But that's <laughs> but like he cut so much like significant chunks of scenes. Like I really almost wonder if this movie would have been I, and I love this movie, but I almost wonder if it would have been better served as like a six episode miniseries because there's so many. I mean, you already have the chapter breaks, but there's so many things that are that are so like not I don't want to say thin, but like could be explored so much more like you know, just the bastards could have their own fucking hours worth of a, of a story like that opening, you know, it bastards chapter is like, that could be a fucking hour on its own. Like it, there's just so much that he filmed, I think even, and cut, like he filmed a whole scene with, um, with Donowitz, with the bear Jew, like getting a bunch of Holocaust survivors to like sign his bat. Like he like went to this woman's house in Brooklyn and mm-hmm. he got he got her to like sign the bat that he uses, and like just really like interesting emotional beats like that that ended up on the cutting room floor. Um, it's it so there's a lot of really interesting uh, stuff that he he cut from this. I, I'd be very curious to at least read the original screenplay from this to see all the extra stuff fleshed out. Yeah, no, I I that does sound interesting because there are a few flashbacks here uh, that make it kind of more poignant. I think, I guess I was reading through IMDb stuff and I like, um, one of the signatures was Anne Frank on the bat. Yeah. I don't, know, yeah. I don't know if somebody else wrote that or like they wrote it for her or like they didn't really go into it. It just said one of that was one of the names on the bat. So I don't know if it was all signatures or just, you know, names of other people or whatever, but yeah, there, I mean, there's always more story to tell, but at the end of the day, you know, how, how long can you sit there and watch, uh, you know, a, a blood sport, Holocaust revenge movie, essentially. Sure. Before you're like, okay, I've had enough. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, unless you're somebody that like us who just wants to see more and more catharsis on screen. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll watch anything Tarantino. Like if Tarantino is like, I, I put out a seven hour film and it's only available in theaters and you have to sit there. I'll be like, all right, well, uh, I guess I'm canceling my plans for uh, the entire day on uh, Wednesday and I'm just going to go <laughs> All right. Like I, I, I'm down for it. You know, I'm down for whatever with him. Yeah. Uh, Hook up the catheter. I'm gonna watch a seven hour movie. <laughs> <laughs> right. Can't pause it. Just bring a giant bag in with with fucking food. Sneak a bunch of food in. We'll I'll be good. Yeah. So um, that's the uh, bastards chapter, and that's a great kind of establishing chapter. Uh, so then you the next chapter is a German night in Paris, and that chapter essentially just deals with the. 
uh, the, the, that's basically the Shoshana chapter where it's just, that's the one that starts with her, you know, up on the marquee arranging the letters. And, uh, we get introduced to Frederick Zoller, who's this private, uh, that, uh, Goebbels made a, a film about because he apparently got trapped in a sniper's tower and killed like 300, you know, American citizens. It's actually based on another soldier, uh, not, you know, named Frederick Zoller, but it's, it's based on a similar story that with the movie that got made. Um, so he, you know, just uh, clearly is, has like a thing for her and she's trying to show him as much as possible. Like, dude, fuck off. Like, even if it wasn't that her family was killed by the Nazis, it's like, you're, you're a fucking occupying army. Like in my con, like if she was even French, it's like, you're an occupying army in my country. And now you're fucking trying to like, you know, like hook up with me, like get, get the fuck out of here. But, uh, but you know, he's a German, he's a fucking douchebag. So he thinks that. Uh, you know, he's entitled to whatever he wants. So, but that's where we get the scene where he, uh, basically kidnaps her and brings her to lunch with Goebbels and, and, you know, Landa shows up and they well, decide they want to have. Because when she shows up there, he's like, oh, you accepted my invitation. So clearly this lunch was already in progress. And when he suggested the idea, somebody just probably snapped their fingers. Well, yeah, they, yeah. And then they sent forever. for her. Yeah. And he probably thought she actually got an invitation as opposed to being, you know, forced into a car. Get your ass in the car is the line. Because um, he, he seems no, a little Dieter bit earnest. Helps. Yeah. The, what, uh, Dieter Hellstrom is the guy I think who sent for her. The guy, the, the, the guy from the bar scene later who has like the most Nazi sounding name of all time. Dieter right. Hellstrom. <clears throat> um, but that's but he seemed to be like, I, I'm not sure what he is, but he seems to be a pretty... Uh, significant figure oh he's a gestapo major so like that's you know he, he's a pretty uh significant figure in the in the the reich or, or you know of the and, time, and you don't even so really have to know what all their ranks are because you can tell if somebody's you know interrupts somebody he's at a table with gerbils quiet, and, yeah. then then you know they're the higher rank but they kind of color coordinate well where the lighter the uniform tone the the lower awfulness yeah, yeah. they are like you get all like you know you go from like uh he's you know, wearing like the black a, a light green to like a light blue to like a dark green and then this guy is just pitch black right his whole yeah. uniform is pitch black he's the worst the worst yeah yeah and he's he's a real motherfucker so he um he's there at that scene he seems like he's sent for um uh sent for her and they decide that they're gonna have the premiere at her theater um which is, you know, significant for the for the end game of the movie, obviously. Uh, and then we get that scene that we discussed with with Landa, where it seems pretty obvious that he knows who she is, but he just likes stringing her along. Um, and and I and I really well, do think one. What are we, what are we gonna say? Oh, just b- before we get to that, like when they were still having like the the they're talking about they're trying to sell Goebbels on having the the, the premiere of this film. Uh, in the smaller theater, and they're like, "Oh, but think it's like half as many people. It'll be more exclusive. It'll it won't be any Parisians. It'll be just for people that are moved emotionally by this movie." And they cut to Shoshana, and she's kind of like, eh, "I got an idea now." <laughs> like they, they make it very clear that they make it very clear that so you don't want to feel conflicted at the end of like, "Oh, she killed a bunch of civilians too." Like she went all Cersei yeah. Lannister on on the people in the high sept that weren't part of the the whole cult, or whatever. They want to make it very clear that it's only evil people in this theater. Yeah. So that when when you get to the the final act, 
you don't have any moral ambiguity whatsoever. So that that seems seems drugged out to do that. Yeah, but, yeah, but it was to make, to just like make it like okay, this is only going to be the worst of the worst. Uh, and and her it, her reaction is just is is perfect because you can tell she's just begun the you know the the beginnings yeah. of her machinations, and when you finally get to the first moment where she's you know she's like we can barely you know we spend all day trying to prevent this thing from burning down i think it's gonna be pretty easy once we do it on purpose <laughs> yeah right <laughs> implying um, that you know the nitrate is so flammable that it, it potentially they, they've been putting out fires all this time trying to save the place yeah there's a reason they don't make the films out of sulfur nitrate anymore <laughs> right well the um, other thing i don't know they don't really explain this in the film it wasn't just that the film was flammable it's that the light source they didn't have light bulbs back then right so the light was literally an arc torch, oh, literally Jesus just Christ. like a, an open, <laughs> hot electric spark right behind the film. So it's like a welding you know, torch. Basically, I, I don't know if you know what um, moonlight towers were back in the late 1800s, early 1900s. But before you had street lights, you had these giant arc lamps, basically like an electric spark. Uh, happening nonstop that creates light and it's really loud. It's like a kind of sound and they put them mm-hmm. hundreds of feet up, right? So you wouldn't really hear it as street lights. But imagine the same thing right behind the the hot moving gears of the of the film going by and it's extremely explosive. And then the the literally the, the lamp is this little arc of electric fire. And you can imagine how many theaters I read somewhere recently, 90% of all the films made before 1929 are completely lost. And yeah. that's mostly because of fire. Yeah, that's yeah, that's which sucks. But um, yeah, so uh, you know, in that scene, another thing I love about that scene is uh, Shoshana's performance, like the actress who plays her when you know she's speaking with Landa and she's really keeping it together. And then the second he leaves, she just like completely emotionally collapses because she's oh, just yeah. trying to hold she's it gasping. the entire yeah. time. Because this is the fucking guy that literally killed her entire family and she's got to pretend that she's like this, like, kind of like, you know, uh, aloof Parisian who's like, mm-hmm. could, could you know, like, couldn't really care one way or another. And it's Melanie it's kind of Laurent is her name, by the way, the actress. Melanie, yeah, Melanie Laurent. She's, yeah, tremendous in this movie. Another really unsung uh, star of this movie. Um, yeah, so then she formulates her. She goes back with with um, Gregory and, and formulates her plan to uh, to to take all the fucking Nazis out. And, and at this point, she doesn't even know that Hitler's going to be there. But she still thinks like, "Hey, you know, what if I, what am I doing if I'm just going to be waiting? You know, waiting to be discovered this entire time." And I think she realizes also like it seems like Londa may or may not be on her. She's like, I don't really have much time left. I might as well fucking chuck up this hail Mary and, uh, take as many of them out as I can. Uh, so she formulates the plan to, uh, to burn the cinema down. Then she, you know, goes and to burn the them all. <laughs> <laughs> and then she beats the shit out of the, uh, that, that, that film developer to get him to develop the film, which was, was a, a fun moment for her. That seems like um, a weird scene. Like you didn't really need to have that in there other than that. It just kind of re established her determination. Yeah, because uh, you know, if you were a, if you owned a cinema, it wouldn't be hard to find somebody to develop film for you. You know, and just be like, oh, hey, well, I need I to. Think... Like he kind of knew what she was up to, but if if you're getting paid, you would just do it. You wouldn't look frame by frame at what it was. Yeah, I don't know. I don't really know the processes of of like the '40s, like 
like to print like if, if it actually would be very obvious what she was doing especially if they had to put the audio to it so like i i think she was just concerned that anyone like could happen upon what she was you know putting to print and then you know give her up to the nazis then she'd be fucking done and yeah you know. I, I suppose that's true yeah it, you could definitely do it without watching or listening to it even back then but yeah um but did you, you couldn't risk it and if you were her I suppose. Maybe. I think they wanted to just kind of have a little bit more of a, um, you know, Viva La Restance moment where she yeah, wanted yeah. to, they wanted to show her as being um, like she's got a, 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 a sort of a violent counterpoint to the silent, I'm just waiting for this moment thing, right? So that when she yeah. finally burns it all down and you see the, you know, flames and her laughing, you know, giant face on the screen. You don't think is completely out of nowhere. You know, like it's a, you know, she's, she's not burning down King's landing and became the mad queen out of nowhere. As some other fans of other series might think. Yeah. Also not true as we've, as we've established over not 50 true. hours of podcasting, but yes. Um, yeah. So, uh, that that is basically the German Knight in Paris uh, arc and chapter uh, of the movie. Uh, so then it moves into my favorite chapter of the movie, uh, Operation Kino, which starts off with a uh, hilarious scene of uh, Michael Fassbender uh, going to meet with uh, a, a British uh, SAS uh, intelligence guy, uh, Austin Powers. Played by Mike Myers, doing the Austin Powers voice essentially, or doing doing some one of his voices from Austin Powers, um, <clears throat> uh, with a with a kind of stodgy old Winston Churchill in the background, barely even in the in the, in the shot. Um, and he he basically lays out the plan because they've uh, gathered intel and they actually found out that Hitler is going to be attending the premiere, uh, which which obviously elevates it from like hey, this would be a good plan to, hey, Winston Churchill needs to be personally involved in this because this could end the entire war and we need right. to make sure you're, you're, you're fucking the right guy for this. Uh, and well, they, you know. The, the funny thing to me is they, they sort of quiz him on his knowledge of German cinema for about a minute and a half and they're like, yep, good enough. <laughs> tell, him, <laughs> tell him the plan. And if you know like the real history, th- there were so many double and triple and quadruple uh, agents that just you know somebody would be get hired to go in and be a spy for the other side, but really they were they were spying to get intel on the other. So like that, in in the 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 double irony of that is that Fassbender is a native German, and English is actually his second language. So he's yeah. playing a guy with the exact opposite situation of who he is in real life, which is kind of funny uh, considering the outcome. Which- Tarantino didn't know and it's and it's funny because like his accent that he does he had to actually put on a bad or, or like an, a, a different German accent because he already had right. a, a very accurate <laughs> German accent because he speaks yeah, it'd be German like if, as if his native were, tongue. If I went to Europe and I walked around talking like I was from Boston <laughs> the whole time. Yeah, right. Like or, or no, like if you if you were trying to talk like with a German accent as if English was your second language or like you know, so you were from some weird village. No, but the know, Boston like, thing's funnier. It's just it, it would be funnier. Yeah. <laughs> Because fucking Americans that come over here, right? they come over here and they're such assholes, but they talk the way. Yeah, I'm from fucking Boston. What do you, you got? The fucking Great Wall, fucking Berlin. Still, no, that's gone. <laughs> no, all right, all right, all right. Um, yeah, but so, so that, so they lay out the plan, and then we, uh, uh, 
you know, we cut to that scene where they're kind of preparing uh, to go meet in the uh, basement of this tavern, uh, which was set up by Bridget von Hammersmark, who's their their German, you know, spy on the inside. She's this German film actress, uh, which is also based on a couple of real life uh, individuals. Uh, but so they, you know, set up this plan and then they're like, well, is she really, you know, fucking around with us? Why would she have us meet in a basement? You know, Brad Pitt especially is not happy about, the, about having to fight in the basement. Um, but, you know, Fassbender is somebody who I don't really think did anything of note before this movie. And he's such a fucking revelation in this movie, even though he's in it for maybe 10 minutes that he he's kind of built a career on 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 this movie after he's gotten a million you know more prominent roles really? after this movie. He wasn't Magneto before this. No, no, I don't. Uh, I don't think. So. I don't believe so. Or, if he was, it was up. right around. Uh, it was right around the same time. If he was, I don't believe he. No, first class was twenty eleven. So that so he really I was I, just I, after yeah. Yeah, so he hadn't done much of anything, and you know, he obviously was Magneto, and I think he's tremendous as Magneto for you know all the flaws of of those of yeah. that that uh, wing of the X Men. Oh, movies. he was in Three Hundred. There's a fucking oh yeah, he player. was like one of the random ass you know Three Hundred yeah. guys. But then he was like Steve Jobs in that in that pretty good Steve Jobs movie. If you forget that Steve Jobs is a you know douchebag, uh, written by Aaron Sorkin. Um, and you know, he's been in a lot of shit, so he's, he's built a, a, certainly a career off of the, off, off of that amazing kind of little, you know, uh, come in off the bench for 10 minutes and steal the movie, uh, role. Sure. So he, uh, he is kind of leading the, uh, the, the ruse that they have going this, in this, in this bar room scene. And this scene is, I think the best scene in the movie. It's it's another well, twenty it, thirty minute scene where yeah, it's just like it, it's a thing that Tarantino has often done. Also, Paul Thomason has often done where right in sort of the middle of the second act or the end of the second act, they'll have like a movie within a movie where suddenly you you introduce yeah. new characters and you're like, well, wait, this, I don't understand where we are, what's happening. It's almost like just an entirely different film in the middle of the rest of the film. Um, and I can think of, you know, a couple of different examples from Tarantino PTA, but it's, it's definitely people remember this scene more than any other part of the movie. And they don't even remember like how it ties into the rest of the movie. They just remember the, the basically the, you know, the card game, uh, you know, the fingers, the drinking. And then I didn't even really remember the ending of it, uh, which, which ends really you know, for you know, blow bloody. each other's balls off. And then, yeah, they're basically a big, big yeah. clusterfuck shootout. Like, why didn't one of them close their legs? I really get shot on the outside of my thigh. Like, come on. Have some, <laughs> I know, right? Tactically, cover your nuts before you fucking end that <laughs> Mexican standoff. But just the dialogue in this scene and, and, and you know, Fassbender fucking in, in, in German. Just like so, like everything about the scene I just love. I, I love. I love how, and this is another thing. It's like, I'm never, I'm never one who's like, oh, subtitles. But like, you know, it, it I don't even think of this movie having subtitles like it, I, I like when i watch them i was like oh yeah i forgot this movie's like in a million different languages but because it just feels so amazingly acted even in the scenes where it's in german and where it's in you know french or italian well, not, maybe not the italian part but everything other than that it's like so amazingly acted that the in my head i i, I hear everything just per, in per, like in english like i remember those dialogue scenes in sure. english but you know what i mean well, like it's so uh, 
again, watch that scene. If no other scene of this movie you watch with no subtitles, watch this scene. Because yeah. you have all the cues you need there to know what's happening without, you know, because the, the scene that, that sets it up, they're all speaking English, right? So you know what the stakes are. You know they're impersonating not actual Nazis. You get a sense of what the ranks are because by their colors, you get a sense they're officers. And you get a sense that people that are already there are drunk and lower ranking, right? So yeah. w- when this higher ranking guy suddenly, you know, calls out from the shadows that you didn't see him as reading the book, you're like, oh, fuck. You know, the, yeah, the, no, the, the level scratch, of literal record scratch. Right. And you don't need to know what they're saying to know what's happening in that scene at all. Mm. Um, so, yeah, if you go back and you watch it without any subtitles, uh, if if nothing else, watch that. It would one still work. Scene yeah. Movie like that. Uh, and one of the other things I love is is when, you know, when the ruse is finally up and, and Fassbender's character Finally, go when he's like, "Oh, at least can I go oh. back to speak the you best know, line of the movie?" Yeah, yeah speaking. <laughs> Where he says like, uh, "Well, you know, you know, if this is it, old boy, I hope if you, I hope you don't mind if I go out speaking the kings as he's like lighting a cigarette." Right, right, which very much mirrors his portrayal as the um, as the you know as the android from uh, the Prometheus alien mm-hmm. prequels that uh what's his name fucking did which aren't that great except for bassbender's portrayal right yeah uh, agreed. and if you remember so there's there's prometheus and then alien covenant right and the first one when the whole crew is still asleep you see michael fassbender's alien uh watching lawrence of arabia over and over and over and and kind <laughs> of adopting that affectation and it's yeah. hard not to see kind of the the, the proto version of that with Fassbender's character, not just when he's, but you know, before he goes on the mission, but in that moment when he breaks character, like he's kind of like, well, I, I don't know what to do. So I'm just going to, you know, do this. Be really erudite. And fucking like, <laughs> right. Yeah. Which doesn't even really make sense because, you know, obviously, obviously Lawrence of Arabia came out, uh, you know, over what, 10, 15 years after world war two. Um, but it has, but that, I think that, he, he portrayed, he, that was like Archie Hickox to him was that character. Like that was, that was the, the real Archie Hickox, like to right. Fastbender. Right. You know what I mean? Like he was this kind of erudite, like film critic that, that got pressed into, into service for the war. And he just happens to be this amazing, uh, you know, master of deception for, for whatever. So which is actually another Michael Fastbender personally as, as a, as an actor just is the one who really wants to be, Lawrence of Arabia. <laughs> Lawrence of Arabia. He's just angling for the for the re- inevitable remake. Right? I'll only play <laughs> inevitable a whitewash guy if you let me mimic the character Lawrence of Arabia. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, yeah. So and that so that's that scene's incredible. Uh, and it ends, of course, in the big shootout. And then we get the the, the great you know un, unseen Bradley uh, Brad Pitt dialogue where he's like talking back and forth with Max. And they're in like a Mexican standoff, and he's like, "This is not a Mexican standoff." And he's like, "Well, look, you know, you, you got guns. We come down there, you shoot us. We got grenades. We throw them down. You blow up. That's a Mexican standoff." He's like, "No, you need um, three argue, people. You don't. It's not arguing semantics with. <laughs> it's right. fucking great." Um, so you know, that's that's uh, the kind of and and that scene that that chapter kind of ends with them uh, in uh in in a vet's office that they basically uh taken over to kind of you know try to uh, sort of heal uh bridget von hammersmark from her gunshot wound 
Sort of um, not too though. I mean, sort of heal, sort of torture, sort of like you know wrap it up to get her through the fucking you know. Um, but th- so the thing that's interesting to me about the scene, I don't think it's necessarily a plot hole. I think it's just like you could explain it, but it's really interesting that he didn't sweep the room at all. Like that 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 Brad that Aldo Rain wouldn't sweep the room at all. Like he left behind a fucking a stiletto and a nap. I mean, not that he knew the napkin existed, but like. The shoe alone, I mean, that seems kind of like for somebody who's who seems to be a fairly skilled uh, tactician in terms of like ambushing all of these Nazi troops and surviving. It's kind of smart, though. He's used to laying out all the scenery for people, like all the scalps out to to scare people. He's not a forensic pathologist where he's looking for clues to hide. Right, and but he's but he he's smart in his own way. Like he's he, he's he survived against all of these like pretty well trained with this guerrilla group against all these pretty well trained German, you know. It's uh, just the opposite of what platoons. he what he's done of of displaying yeah. everything all over the place. Now he's like, I don't really know what to do in a basement. Uh, <laughs> and it's also remember we're watching a dinner theater play. There's got to be yeah. some clues left behind to make you know. No, no, on, sure. On some the, level, it's for a the movie to move forward in in the final moments of that in order to figure out what really um, went down there. But yeah, it, 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 I mean, it's also completely implausible that you know because they met in a town that was nowhere near where the theater was. It was somewhere way far away. Some small French yeah village. Right. So, I mean, what are the odds he would even be brought in to see that? Probably. Atlanta would. Yeah, but it's not. It's again, it doesn't matter. It's not realistic. It's just that we've got to put him on the trail in order to get to the ending where he does what he does. You could all. I mean, you can also explain it away as like, look, there was this massive gunfight. Obviously, the Nazis are going to be along any minute. They didn't have time to sweep the room. They just had to get every other people out of there and make sure that they left no traces of you know, the living, living bastards or living members of the operation behind. And I guess maybe that's why, but there's, there's an interesting thread also where, uh, Hans Landa clearly is like a fan of Sherlock Holmes. Like there's a couple like, and they kind of almost play with like, he's like the, the, the like the evil version of Sherlock Holmes. Cause like the way he right. kind of like searches the scene that, that the oh, obnoxious pipe he pulls Holmes, out, if the he shoe does. Fits. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The, I mean, the funny and he part even pulls is he, out that pipe at the beginning. That's very Sherlock Holmes esque with the little, yeah. you know, the dip in it. Like it's he's very but much. Doesn't he? Doesn't he call it? Doesn't he say what's that American saying? If the shoe fits, yeah, he does. Yeah, Which, of course, it's not an American saying. If you are a, reading that as being a, a a quote from Sherlock Holmes, Sherlock Holmes, <laughs> a British, saying, yeah, Sir or, Arthur or Doyle, it would be exactly, exactly. So. Um, but but that's yeah that's funny uh but the, I, I yeah that's an interesting kind of character uh trait of his and I, I actually wonder if tarantino wrote that in or if that was like an actor choice for a couple of those little you know flourishes that, that's a, yeah because Tarantino's not smart enough i think to to think of something like that because he's not a book guy he's a movie guy um because yeah. even at, at one point because he at the beginning he embraces the term jew hunter because he's trying to scare the shit out of that guy and then later on, he's trying to downplay it. And he's like, Jew hunter. That's ridiculous. I'm a detective. <laughs> I hunted many people. Some were Jews, but I'm a detective. Like he even he, he says it when he's trying to kind of reframe his crimes as being, uh, you yeah. know, a, a police well, that was also action. definitely him glossing him trying to reframe himself as like a, a, you know, a reluctant participant, you know, when he was trying to make close the deal with. Oh, yeah. With, yeah. yeah. With that's, Aldo. that's what I'm what I'm saying. He, he's artfully yeah. reframing the thing that at the beginning of the film, he was trying to embrace to uh, maximum horror. 
effect. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, so that's that's kind of the wrap up of Operation Kino, and then we move into the fifth and final chapter of the movie, Revenge of the Giant Face, which starts with the the greatest fucking like little transitional music cue and it's super anachronistic it's a song from the fucking 80s but they 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 you know open up that chapter with cat people by david bowie and even <laughs> though even so though fucking, so fucking have you seen there. cat people have you no, seen it? i uh, i and malcolm mcdowell and oh god it's such it's a, a remake of movie. a b movie from the 40s and it's i actually really want to see it now that i was doing research on it because i love oh, schlocky so horror movies from the 80s and it's like so it's you know that tarantino from the 80s yeah well, you know Tarantino is fucking watched that at like 2 a.m. in his fucking video store that he owned one day because he was just, you know, stoned off his ass and like looking through all these like yeah. back tapes of shit. But um, so, yeah, he, they use that song, which is even though it's from a ridiculous movie soundtrack, it's one of Bo, uh, Bowie's better songs from the 80s. It's fucking great. Uh, I mean, it's not a good song, and he had a lot of bad songs in the 80s, uh, but it, I like that song. But I, I don't dislike it either. It's just, you know, it, it is. It is what it is, but it also Bowie's. You know, the song sets up that this final act is going to be even more absurd and breaking the fourth (laughs) wall, and just like things are going to happen that couldn't possibly happen that historically didn't happen, historically couldn't. I mean, we Hitler didn't die in a fucking, uh, you know, in a in a a a French theater fire. Oh, or did Um, (laughs) uh, where's his body then? I hope you're listening, QAnon. Um, So, but yeah. that I mean that 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 level of, of of absurdity. I think they use that song uh, to kind of establish that that yeah. this is this is where everything just goes to fucking crazy town. Plus, I mean, and and just even in a more simple that's certainly true. And even in a more simplistic reading of it, Tarantino just loves his fucking needle drops, and that scene worked so perfectly with that song. Like it just the mood of that scene. And of her like setting up her ultimate revenge, fucking just perfectly tied in with the with the mood yeah. of, and the lyrics and, of and that song. The, like, the shot where they kind of they they push in on her by the big circular window it looks like the an picture eye. window, yeah. And she's got this long blood red gown on that that looks exactly like the long red Nazi banners hanging outside the window, mm-hmm. and it's just like she's committed to whatever level of bloodshed is is necessary to to still mm-hmm. be under the radar uh you know hiding in plain sight about to murder all of them kind of a kind of a thing so i i like the way the music was used but i like that shot they i love the way for a while as well yeah and they also follow her in a total overhead shot which is a weird thing for a tarantino movie and i think it's the only time i ever remember him doing it where he, they just follow her the, the end of that scene they follow her in like a complete you know looking down overhead shot out the door uh and it was just a it's a really interesting scene that that little you know just that little last scene we have with shoshana before her final scene um so then we get the uh hilarious lobby scene which is one of the best scenes in the movie just in terms of the comedic uh just just, just fucking brad pitt so you know they set up beforehand when they're in the vet's office like brad pitt's like you know well i speak the most italians italian so i'm gonna be the i'll be the i'll be the uh the star and then you know you be my cameraman and then you be my uh uh assistant or whatever because you speak the third most italian he's like i don't speak any italian he's like like i said the third least <laughs> <laughs> you're the third worst or whatever and, and, <laughs> 
And fucking his Italian is is arguably the wor- the worst and goofiest of all of them. Like he just has this absurd accent. It's oh, super Pitt. clear that he's no, yeah, it's, it's Arkansas. It's it's like the, I used to when I was a, a teenager. Bon I worked at, yeah, I worked at a subway sandwich shop right when I was like eighteen, uh-huh. seventeen, or eighteen. And people would come in. Keep in mind, this is rural, and they'd be like, "I'd like the Italian club." <laughs> you know, yeah, that's exactly yeah, what it's like, like. That's exactly what he sounded like. And then, of course, you know, uh, Land is like making fun of him by asking him to repeat it over and over and over. Because <laughs> you know, like a thing he knows the, who he is. You know, yeah, a, a thing in the the previous scene is simple as like holding up three digits on your hand with your index finger or your thumb or not with oh, your yeah, thumb. Oh yeah, forgot to mention that. Yeah, is, that. Is, well, everyone remembers that part. It's not worth mentioning, other than to, to, to the fact that well, so, something that subtle was noticed in the previous really serious scene. And then here in the ridiculous scene, <laughs> their accents are so, you know, over the top and fake and they're not immediately apprehended, you know, and there's a plot reason, but it's also like, let's keep this joke going as long as possible. <laughs> Cause it's fucking hilarious. And right. you know, Eli Roth with the Antonio, my God, it's just so fucking over the top. Yeah, and, yeah. Hilarious. and then the last guy, the last guy who said he spoke no Italian actually pronounces it flawlessly perfectly yeah no, and perfectly. the guy says like well just say it one more time ah, you got it you got it no we know italian he knew how to pronounce the one name uh, and i wish i wish i had I've written it down because it actually is like dominic the coco dominate the coco yeah and he's like yep, yep, yeah there you go you got it um but so uh, but you know it's funny about the th- and i wanted to mention this about the three finger scene it's such a great little like tell and giveaway that that sets that whole like like climax of that scene into motion and it's super subtle. And if you noticed it, you noticed it. And if you didn't, it like you probably would read that later and be like, oh, shit, that's fucking awesome. But Tarantino, being the fucking film nerd that he is, has to tell you the next, the very next scene, what the, the fucking clever thing he thought of. So, yes, uh, Bridget Von Hammersmark, tell them. Explain. In, in, in the vet. That, that was such a Tarantino moment where I was like, dude, come on. Like, that would have been such a fun thing for me to find online if I didn't know about it beforehand. <laughs> Well, but, they, all they needed was was a, a slightly more deliberate insert shot of just the hand gesture, and then and then him like giving a queer focus. look to it, like uh, like yeah, because they did it, but it was still kind of like, well, wait, what did he? What was it? He played and, it super subtle, uh, uh, Dieter, yeah, Telstrom, the uber Nazi guy, and, and maybe he even shot it a couple different ways, and people still uh-huh. just audiences just did not fucking get it. And they was like, all right, we got to go with the explanation scene so that no one's fucking confused about what the fuck happened. But honestly, you know, what do we mean? What's that? It would have been even perfect if they had sh- given he'd given a little bit more of a recognition on his face, and then they cut to Von Hammer's mark, and she gave like a uh, like kind of look, and that would have been all they needed to do in that scene to establish why he gave the game away. You know, like in that scene, without having to fucking spell it out in the next scene. But it, it's fine. It's uh, Tarantino. He can't help himself. I know. Sure. He just probably went to Europe and somebody said that one time. He's like, uh-huh. oh, that'd be a great thing for a movie. And then, you know, in, in real life, somebody who was deep undercover as a Nazi officer who was, a, you know, a, a, had written two books about German cinema. <laughs> Would probably fucking know that already. Like that's yeah. not a thing that he wouldn't know. He spent a lot of time. You watch enough movies, if, like you know, never went to Germany. Let's say he didn't even know German. You watch enough movies and you know, see people in German movies uh, ordering beers. You would fucking see that. You know, three, three. You know, yeah, whatever. It's, yeah. it's, it's fine. It's, a, it worked for the moment. The device but also you gotta, worked, but yeah. Uh, 
we gotta Still. remember also Tarantino is like the biggest fan of Quentin Tarantino on the planet. <laughs> like he which which I Yeah, as an aside, just to remind myself how much I like his movies and hate to hear him talk about his movies. Oh my god, he's I so spent, fucking manic. I spent an hour and a half watching uh interviews of Kelly Reichardt talk about her films because she's one of my favorite directors and knows every little moment and tiny little nuance and, and thing about her films, mm-hmm. but struggles to talk about it because she's very kind of introverted and shy. Wants to let and, it speak for itself. And- yeah. Yeah. But she knows that she's, you know, like she's a woman. So when people want her to talk about her film, she's required to, she can't get away with just like doing a film like Terrence Malick Plunk does the and then not talk about it on a, on a, you know, lecture tour. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wanted to kind of just like get ready to talk about how much I hate Tarantino as a person and as a person talking about his own films. So I watched (laughs) Kelly record interviews (laughs) to contrast that. Uh, and yeah, just, I, there's ways you can talk about yourself and about your own film that don't have every sentence that comes out of your mouth, starting with the word I or me or mine, (laughs) I was I listened today to a podcast that like it was kind of like a, a a prelude to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. He's, he did this little interview series podcast for The Ringer, and I was listening to it today, and it's so fucking Tarantino. They talk about like how he I don't know if he owns or is like a part owner has a stake in the New Beverly th- Cinema in in L A. Um, but he what he does is he curates their monthly calendar, like every movie that's on that calendar he curates. And a bunch of them are old movie prints that he actually owns and like lends to the theater to play the actual, you know, old school film reel prints because he's a fucking uber nerd when it comes to like film history. And he's just he's like, yeah, you know, when I show those films, I like to sit in the back of the theater and watch them because it's like, you know, when it's my print, I feel like it's almost like my movie. So when someone comes up to me later, and it's like, oh, man, I love that movie. He's like, oh, thank you. Thank you very much. Because I almost feel like it's like a movie I made. Like he's he's so fucking manic and like. Yeah, he, he's the Ben Shapiro of <laughs> archived cinema. But like, I, I, I like him. But sound sounded like Ben Shapiro. <laughs> and that, but then that's probably like you know eighty percent speed versus what he actually talks like. He really is just yeah perpetually on cocaine. Even if he's not actually doing cocaine, he's perpetually yeah seems like he's on cocaine. He just doesn't care about trying to talk about himself or his own work in a way that doesn't sound absolutely conceited. Well, I, he certainly doesn't uh, not to like diagnose him, but he certainly is not completely socially normative. He definitely has some weird, you know, personality things, but that also makes him this amazing detailed filmmaker. So like it's kind of his, you know, it's every, it's defines everything about him. I think the way, the way he is and the way he's a manic obsessive lunatic when it comes to cinema. And I know there, I know a lot of obsessive lunatic, filmmakers that know how to talk in a way that's not jarring and then uh you know it's just he says so many things you just cringe at yeah it's fine you can be an auteur and not be obnoxious and not be a narcissist but whatever sure. i i don't i don't have i'm not watching a movie going oh i can hear his voice in the back of my head you know trying to you know make frame a sentence about why he's the best. One of, well, all right, I'll give you an example. I'll give you an example. So he did Django Unchanged, right? Yeah. And Loved it. the same year out came a film called 12 Years a Slave. 
Right. And I, you know, one best picture of the year, 12 years a slave. It's a great film, right? Yeah. It's, it's the total opposite of Django Unchained and that no one ever gets revenge. Uh, there's no benevolent. Well, it's realistic. That, I mean. Oh, it's realistic. It's very realistic. It's, it's very neo realistic in that you, you never get an escape. The characters never get an escape. Um, every time you think like, well, where's the hero white person to save them? They don't. Right. Yeah. Um, the, the best someone does is sneak out a letter uh, for somebody and they don't get a response for years after that. Uh, and, and, you know, Django and Chain is very much a black exploitation revival film. It's blood sport. Right. As as revenge cinema. Um, and in an interview, uh, Tarantino said that his film was, quote, more real than, than 12 Years a Slave. I don't know what by what metric you consider it to be more real, more realistic or more visceral or more whatever. Um, but LeVar Burton, kind man he is, as he is from Star Trek Next Generation, Reading Rainbow, who got his start on the, the series Roots, right, uh, got interviewed about a, a number of things, but got asked about 12 Years a Slave, got asked about Django, and he's like, look, uh, Quentin's a friend of mine, but dude, shut the fuck up. You don't know what you're, you don't know what you're talking about when you want to say your film is more real. Like just, yeah. you know, and for, for the guy that did reading rainbow to tell you to shut the fuck up, <laughs> like it's pretty, yeah. you really need to shut the fuck up, Quentin. <laughs> yeah. And even though with all that being said, Django is on its own, a great movie. If you, you know, and it's got, it's got problematic implications certainly, but when well, and this is for another cast, I'm sure we'll cover that eventually. But, um, but it's a, also a great Tarantino movie. It's just if you don't look at it within the larger scope of even a movie like this. I mean, I'm sure some people found this movie problematic for the way it, you know, completely rev- it, it, with it for its revisionist history on the Holocaust and on Hitler. Um, but it, I don't know. It's a weird. I don't it's think it's subgenre. I don't. Have I don't you, think it have is you either, ever read I, a review from somebody who's. Uh, d- descended from a victim of the Holocaust that was like, yeah, I didn't like that they gave a version well, of the, the end of the war like, that I I wish would have happened. <laughs> like, we know no, it's absurd. I, I think people found Django more problematic just because it seemed like he almost reveled in, in, in the language he got to use in that movie to the point where it was almost like... Uh, n- not no, not overkill. What's the word I'm looking for? It, it, it was it was almost superfluous. Like it was just like he was just reveling in all the different ways he got Leonardo DiCaprio to like literally use the N word in that movie. Like more so than just the basic sure. like this is the way people talked at the time. But well, this is much less. Of that, that wasn't I the think. worst thing that Leo did in that movie. He did something way worse. Um, oh God, and, with the blood and the f- yeah. I know you're yeah, talking yeah. yeah. And people that said, oh, that's such a amazing improvised thing. I'm like, no, that's a like fucking that's a health risk. Biological crime. Like, that, that's like an assault, yeah, biological that's basically, assault. Yeah, that, that, that's like assaulting somebody and expecting them to go along with the scene just because you're okay with it. Especially that, with fucking Leo and how many not random okay. ass, you know, women who, he's been Who with. knows? But, I mean, still, just like, that's a th- like, and, and, and that's a thing where if you're a director and you see that, you call cut. If you see yeah, someone, yeah. one of your actors is bleeding, you cut, you turn off the sound, you turn off the camera and you cut and it doesn't matter, you know, especially if somebody starts wiping their fucking open wound on oh, other god. actors oh, my god. to improv, like that's not okay. That's not fucking okay for, for him to have done or either so, one of those guys. 
I mean, in, in Tarantino's slight defense, maybe he, because it didn't, the scene didn't call for him to wipe anything on her face. So maybe he didn't realize, he just thought like, oh, he'll really play up his, his hand injury in the scene. And then by the time he was wiping his hand on her face, it was like too late to, you know, to do anything about it. You know, maybe, but still that shouldn't, that should have fucked up. Out of I mean, that's, yeah. Right. You know, there's certain things that are oh, happy accidents and that's not one of them. Yeah. No, Carrie Washington was super not happy about that. Um, but but anyway, but that'll we'll save that if we do for for our Django cast for further discussion of that. But um, we'll see. You might take a break from Quentin for a little while, and if we do, uh, once upon a time in in Hollywood, we'll hopefully yeah, well, enjoy let's, that yeah. Let's fun. see how that how that ends up. I'm gonna see that Wednesday, so we'll see how that uh, how that ends up turning out. But so uh, yeah, so in that so we get that lobby scene where obviously Landa, you know, knows what's going on, but he lets them proceed because he's got his plan in motion. Uh, but he does take Von Hammer's mark in his office and he does the, you know, like you said, if the shoe fits line and he, you know, in that moment, he, he's being his usual jovial, like string you along and terrify you because he knows, but he's not letting you know if he know, like if he knows or not. And he, you know, because he, again, he gets off on terrifying people and, and, you know, making them wonder whether or not he knows what he knows. But then in that moment, he snaps and chokes her because I guess there is part of him that, you know, is like super loyal to the Nazis and still thinks of her as this traitorous, you know, whatever. So he, he decides to strangle her in that moment. Um, yeah. If you follow the logic, I, I guess you would feel mm-hmm. angrier at one of your own for being a traitor sure. than somebody who's, established themselves as being uh you know blatantly your enemy um Mm -hmm. but i think they just had to kind of remind you this guy is a killer or especially going into what they were about to do with him i think yeah right because they haven't shown you do him do anything actually violent personally it's just his reputation so they had to i think at some point do something it's just again like of all the people you know, I mean, he spares one woman, then he strangles another. Who knows? It's just, uh, yeah, it's still a little creepy that of all the people he could have killed, it's got to be another woman, really. But. Yeah, well, and it also gave Quentin Tarantino a, a, an opportunity to do a bunch of fucking foot shots because that's like his, <laughs> you know, <laughs> another ne- thing necro- we were talking I mean, about with Quentin. Necrophiliac foot shots, no, yeah, so, yeah, ugh. yeah, all right. <laughs> yeah, I, I I really question how long that scene went on for and why he filmed so much of that scene. But we, I think we know the answer. Um, but yeah, so <clears throat> Landa has the uh, the two bastards in the hallway uh, kidnapped and uh, you know brought to that that site, that tavern or whatever it was, you know, nearby uh, where he negotiates with them for his surrender because he kind of sees the writing on the wall, like we said the. Americans are on the beaches. It's super clear to anyone who's not brainwashed by the propaganda that Germany is going to lose that war and that, you know, everyone from the SS, especially people like Landa, are going to end up, you know, uh, on on the short end of a noose or in front of a firing squad. It's not going to be a pleasant experience for them. So him being, you know, the the, the cockroach that he is that never wants to, you know, never... <laughs> never is going to die. He uh, figures out the way to get out of it. And he, you know, decides that 
he'll single-handedly help the Americans win the war because they were about to win anyway. And he's like, eh, well, may as well get something for myself out of this. I'll get a nice retirement. I'll get pardoned. You know, it'll be like I was helping them all along. And ultimately, he doesn't give a shit. You know, he's not super... Uh, he's not an ideologue. He just he just does what he does because he's a sadist and because no, what they that's what they, he's not going to take a baseball bat to the head to you know f- for the sake of saving fellow German officers or yeah troops. he could give like, a fuck about any guy. of yeah um so you know they they bring him in they bring uh, Rain and B J Novak uh, who's Dudovich I think his name is uh in to negotiate and uh there's a, one of my favorite line reads in that scene also and it's like the only line he says in the entire movie but uh landa says to to uh Yudovich, like well you know do you would, would you want to be known by the name uh that you're referred to by the germans the little man and he's like germans call me the little man <laughs> like just the way he fucking delivers that line i i, I lose it, it every no single idea. time well, you look at him, like, at least the way they had him seated, he's half a head taller than Brad Pitt. But again, they're sitting down, you know. He's like, half well, a head, Yeah, he's just kind of, like, fucking with him at that point. And who knows? They probably didn't even call him that. He might have just made yeah, it up on the spot. He's like, you're not that little. I mean, you're you're small, but you're not, like, cir- circus midget small. Right. Or whatever but he, he says, but so. he's also, it's it's the, it's almost the, the Tyrion Lannister form of manipulating people uh into seeing your side of things is to be you know you do like an insult and also like a you know you disagree with the insult at the same time yeah kind of throw, throw people off and then kind of establish like hey but we're really on the same side here because i don't agree <laughs> with, with the thing that everyone calls you i can't work. believe people would even say that you're a pig fucker like i don't know why yeah like to, right. you know exactly um so in that scene, that's that's a great, you know, kind of funny interaction with Bray. He also has another one of his great fucking line reads in that scene where he's like, ooh, that's a bingo. Is that what you say? And he's like, y- you just say bingo. And he's like, oh, bingo. Yeah, that, that was a good Jar Jar Binks impression there. You did a... Great, but it's uh, kind of that's kind of how he how he fucking says it. It's hard to. He, it's such an over the top. That's, oh, it totally that's again, is. It's like it totally. Is, why Landa I mean, is it's like a, it's a very common, you know, Twitter gif, I guess. But yeah, uh, yeah, you know, the, 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 those kind of things where they just you say it wrong. You know, yeah, that's yeah, a yeah. bingo. Like wh- whoever says that's a bingo. <laughs> Although, we, but, we and of, again, we, it's like oh, he's such a he's such a that. But like his character is so funny and at, at times in this movie that you almost forget who he is. But then he never again. He never makes that turn into like into likable because he he always brings you right back to like. No, this guy's the worst motherfucker in the room. Like he's the most evil guy in the room. Like you know, he's a fucking lunatic. But I, but I, I, it's. I think that's why he did win best supporting actor for this role. He won the Oscar for this role because he just played it. Every every scene he is in in this movie he plays so perfectly, where he doesn't go too far in either direction. You know, no matter how much he hams it up. So that's yeah. Uh, that's and that's kind of the last scene where he gets to demonstrate that because um you know he he agrees to this uh terms of surrender where he's gonna let this plan go forward uh to blow up hitler and as far as they know the only plan that they have in place is the bombs and the guns that uh that uh donnie and omar are gonna steal off of the guards and you know kill as many of them as they can on the way out. I, I, it's unclear to me. I think that they're, 
I, they, they don't seem to ever want to get out because they actually could have gotten out at some point. Like they were in the upper deck. They weren't trapped in the theater with everyone else. So like they could have gotten out, but I guess they they decided to they were going to go I don't know out. Why they couldn't get out. I mean, they well, they could have. They that's they were on the upper deck. They could have just walked out the the door. I think right. I'm sure they looked at other ways to get out, and they kind of show them looking around there for a while. Once they're in, they go but into maybe like, the fire like, trapped them in. No, because the I mean the door right behind him is wide open. They went up to the box seats. They machine gun Hitler and Goebbels, you know, for what seems like half an hour. Uh, and, and they show <laughs> the doors scene. right behind them totally open. There's no fire behind them. Yeah. I wonder if they just got caught up in the moment and they didn't realize the bombs were about to go off at that moment. I mean, that's maybe that's the only explanation. That's still a few sticks of dynamite under a chair. That's not going to bring down the house by any means the way a fire would. No, but like they were right next to it because that, 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 that was the dynamite that. Le- oh you know what though they didn't even know that dynamite was there because landa planted that dynamite yeah, so he didn't really right. they, they didn't right. realize that dynamite was right under their feet so maybe they figured they'll shoot a bunch of nazis and then they'll walk out the door not realizing there's a stick of dynamite right behind them it doesn't matter it, it it's so absurd no, at that well, point but, <laughs> but it's interesting but it's i i think it's it's interesting to see how meticulously kind of thought out that was because you know they could have easily it could have easily made no sense, but if you think about it, it did. It did actually kind of track, and that's kind of where sure. Quentin excels for all of his fucking manic neuroses. Is that he is, you know, he's his own biggest like question asker when it comes to screenplays, and that's the big thing with stories like this. Is it's like, well, you really got to make sure there are no glaring plot holes. Like, you know, you can have absurdities like Hitler's face being blown off, but. It, it, it needs to make sense at how you got there and, you know, how you're, how it, you know, how it tracks up to that point And after that. So I think that's, oh, I agree. I agree. Um, his strong suit, but yeah, so I love that scene. And then of course, you know, the two plans coming together, the, the kind of melding of the, of, of the two uh, plans. And it's interesting. Cause it's like, if uh, there's no way they could have known about each other, but it would, they would have actually, I, I they, they couldn't have pulled it off better if they had it or had, you know, worked on it together, Shoshana and the bastards. Like they, they, the way they ended up triangulating, they managed to take out every fucking Nazi in the place. Whereas but if they, they just set off the, the great part is they didn't work together. So no, it, I know that's it worked out better it, that they either didn't. one had no plan at all, the other plan still would have succeeded. Right. Well, so like, you know what's funny is like Shoshana's plan wouldn't have killed Hitler and Goebbels and all of them because they were up in the box. Like they probably would have gotten out. Are you sure? You know what I mean? Uh, I'm pretty sure because uh, Gregory locks the doors to the theater, but he locks the lower doors. There's no way to lock the upper doors. Are you sure Unless, they weren't lo- the upper doors weren't locked and got unlocked by the two bastards? I don't think so because up until they went in, they were being guarded by the two Germans right outside the door. So I don't yeah, know when he could have. That's true because they, they kill him with those little like hand punchy gun things. So. Yeah, I, think I guess they were just that, trying to take out as many Germans as they could, like sure. high-ranking ones, you know. Sure, sure. Yeah, I, I guess that that's true. That if the, if it was just the fire and just the lower doors locked, then you know, then uh, uh, Adolf may have gotten out of there. But we'll see. when the bastards' plan would have certainly gotten Hitler, uh, you know, if it, it, assuming it went off as they <laughs> wanted it to, uh, where you know where, where they. Um, where they went upstairs and they took out the two guys outside with that, that cool little wrist gun thing, which is actually a real gun. Apparently I, I, I did some research about that. Oh, yeah. Um, but, uh, and, and then got in there and, you know, shot up Hitler and Goebbels and all of them. 
but they probably wouldn't have killed the vast majority of the officers down in the pit. You know, a lot of them would have gotten away. It would have been maybe gotten 20, 30 of them. They wouldn't have gotten 300 of them. Uh, so it's it's amazing that the two plans kind of met in the middle and, and did the maximum <laughs> damage, you know, that, that it could. Uh, I also love the shot in that scene where the smoke's billowing up in the theater and you have Shoshana's face projected on the fucking smoke cloud, you know, laughing in the... While all the Nazis the, are burning. Yeah, it was know. very... It reminded me a lot of the end of um, Raiders of the Lost Ark, actually. Yeah. Yeah, I could see that. Um but it's and it's funny. I, I just imagine like it, it just as a kind of like a dumb thing. Like, what was that scene like when she was filming it? Is she just like laughing maniacally in a fucking in, in the stairwell that they were filming this, like not knowing what's happening? Like if it's actually oh, gonna yeah. work or not. I mean <laughs> it's just why, funny why wouldn't you? You know that the, the whole stage is gonna be on fire. Why wouldn't you just pour yourself into knowing that because she's probably she didn't think she was going to die she thought she was going to get to watch all of that herself yeah you know it's true um oh yeah well that was another thing we didn't mention that she ended up uh because you know frederick zoller who's the 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 subject of the the propaganda movie uh left the theater because he was getting like upset by seeing you know him killing all these people or whatever and he goes up to the projection booth to hit on her some more and then they harass you know, her. No, that's it. Yeah. They, well, he, they, he, he, he upped his game from hitting on her to harassing her. And, well, he, uh, he probably would have raped her. If she didn't like come on to him in that moment. Like it's well, like he slammed the door on her and like, so you know. when, when she shoots him, it's when there's still, uh, bullets flying in the movie. So yeah. like it, it hides the gunfire sound and then it drops down to like a really sad, like quiet music. And then she walks up to him and then the music soars. And that's when he turns and shoots her. But yeah. it's not clear if the music in that scene is supposed to be part of the movie or if it's supposed to be part of our movie. It's it, I'm um, pretty sure it's not. It's supposed to be part of our movie uh, because the song itself is actually uh, called Un what is it called? Unamore or something like that. And it's from a 1973 movie. But um, it, I mean, it, it looks like she she's shooting and then the, the shooting, in the movie stops. So she stops because she's like, well, if I keep shooting, they'll hear real bullets and they'll come running so, up here. And that's why she stops. But then when he turns to shoot her, it's almost like he knew the music was going to soar, which makes it seem like it was actually in the movie they're watching. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's or, he, like didn't he, because, or, or he, he didn't, didn't care because or he didn't care because it's still timed in such a way where it makes it seem like. You know, she kind of that was, she kind of fucked up and not continuing to make yeah. sure he was dead. Basically, I just think that was a Tarantino flourish with with the soundtrack because the song actually <clears throat> is called Unamico. It's a Ennio Mar- uh, Morricone song from Ennio uh, Morricone. Yeah, it was his favorite uh, <laughs> composer. Even though Ennio Morricone has like a love hate relationship with Tarantino, like he 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 scores some of his shit but he also is like really annoyed by tarantino so like and sometimes he like refuses to work with he's a very interesting they have a very interesting dynamic which i he's like can imagine five years old he's the most famous composer it, you know uh, any morricone famously scored all the uh, all the spaghetti westerns spaghetti in the westerns, 1960s you know? yeah uh and then he did like a bunch of kind of uh, neo uh, new wave french and italian films in the 
you know, 60s as well. Crime um, and stuff, shit. Yeah. yeah, I mean, he'll score anything. And, and what I he's love great. about him is that he's never learned English, right? So really? all the movies, uh-huh. yeah, he scored hundreds and hundreds of films, um, some obscure, some art house, some mainstream, but he has no idea what the dialogue is, right? And he's not going to fucking sit down and read a, an a, you know, Italian-translated screenplay. He's just watching the scenes and goes, okay, you want music from here to here. It's a love story. Here's the, you know, mezze scene that I'm seeing. And here's the fucking score. I'm going to come up with it. And I don't give a shit what the actors are saying. Yeah. <laughs> no, he's, he's, a, he's, a, he's the total grumpy yeah. old fucking Italian, you know, yeah. like, I mean, whatever. Just give me. Exactly. And, and, you know, most John Williams didn't sit there listening to the dialogue of Star Wars to write the score to Star Wars. You know, he didn't care what the fucking dialogue is. That's not how you no. score a film. But you, you, if a movie's done well enough by by the director, you should be able to get a feel for what's going on in the scene, even without under, like you said, understanding what's going on. Like even in those scenes with exactly. the subtitles, so it's like, the job of the director and the sound mixer to balance the dialogue with the score if they're at the same time, so that you 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 know the score drops down if there's a line of dialogue, and then once the dialogue's done, the score soars again if you need it to. You know, yeah. And, that's, so, that's not the job of the composer. Composer is just to like yeah. fucking write the music and record it. <laughs> yeah. But so that song, uh, which is a great song I'm going to use as the intro to this episode, it's called uh, Un Amico. And it's, uh, he actually wrote it initially for a movie called Revolver, which was a 73 film that he scored, uh, Marconi. So it's not even something he scored for this movie. It's something that Tarantino needle dropped into that scene because he thought it fit it perfectly, even though, again, it's a total anachronism it's a it's from a movie from the 70s and it kind of sounds uh, like it's from the 70s like the, the the opening riff is this kind of like cool uh guitar riff where it almost sounds like uh the intro to smashing pumpkins today that song today it's like, got that like dun, dun, dun. and then it kind of like devolves into like drums and and like kind of acoustic guitars but it's definitely not of the 40s so it's like but it, again, it fit the scene and it fit like the tone he was trying to go for with the, yeah. and and that's also one of the few times that he's used slow motion to dramatic effect, like you know in a in a scene where someone's you know getting shot and dying. It's not a technique he actually uses too often. Uh, surprisingly, he he shows restraint with that, but uh, it, it worked for the scene. So you know, he 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 tried a lot of shit in this movie that I think he normally would be too not afraid but like he didn't think he could get away with but he he you know he threw everything at the wall in this movie and it all seemed to stick so he was definitely you, like firing you, on this movie. um you know what the the shooting budget was for this uh i don't but talk a little bit and i'll find it <laughs> <laughs> um well because all of his films are sort of an homage to a thing a genre uh or a medium Right. Like Pulp Fiction, uh-huh. Reservoir Dogs were throwbacks to, you know, almost crime noir. Right. Yeah. Uh, and Jackie Brown was was like more black exploitation. Obviously, mm-hmm. Kill Bill was like, uh, you know, 60s, 70s samurai stuff. You know, um, he got kind of in the Westerns with Django and Hateful Eight. Uh, and then one of the things that I, I love about um about Death Proof is that, you know, Robert Rodriguez, who he, he kind of co-billed that, that Grindhouse double feature yeah. thing, is that Robert Rodriguez shoots everything on green screen. It looks fucking ridiculous. And I don't even know how they're friends because Tarantino hates that shit. And one of the things I love about Death Proof is that it's, it's an homage to 
stunt drivers, right? Where the, the villain is the stunt driver who's death proof and uses his car, his stunt car to kill people in his car and outside his car. And it takes another stunt woman uh, played by Zoe Bell, who's an actual stunt woman, you know, in, in sort of a send up to the genre and also the, the, the movie, um, uh, was it faster pussycat kill kills the name of the film, uh, where they're doing the hood, the hood stunt, which she actually did. And they actually shot all of that. There's no CGI. It's all practical. Uh, and it's the only film that Quentin Tarantino was actually the cinematographer for it. Right. And it has arguably the, the most amount of stunts and the most amount of car chase and car dialogue, uh, where they're they're literally smashing the cars, not going you not not like in the sixties where they would like have a car chase at twenty miles an hour and then over crank it to make it be sped up, right to make it look fast. But but where they were the, in this film, they're actually driving you know forty five fifty fifty miles an hour with somebody strapped to the hood and crashing the cars uh, with an actual stunt woman playing a stunt woman playing herself essentially. And Quentin was, you know, apparently on the chase car with the camera filming it himself. And it's the only film he's done that with. Holy shit. That's cool. Yeah. Um, But, you know, for Rodriguez, I mean, nowadays he's definitely like a lot of green screen. But his early career, he started with like El Mariachi, Desperado. Oh, yeah. uh, Dust Till Dawn. Like he was a great practical filmmaker. And I think he just kind of got lazy in his later career. But um but in, in any of it, so, you know, Inglorious Bastards, uh, $70 million budget, which is pretty big, but, you know, for a movie wow. of the scale is not really surprising. Uh, made $325 million, so that's, you know, a good a good return, uh, certainly. I think uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood was his biggest uh, opening for a movie ever, so I'm curious to see what that ends up topping out hmm. at. And I guess that'll depend on how well the movie's received and word of mouth yeah. and all that, but... Well, I mean, what does Brad Pitt get still? Like $20 million? So I'm sure. And Leo, I mean, like that fucking movie is, you know. Yeah, I mean, a lot, a lot of these, high budget. you know, what Avengers, half the budget is is just paying the actors, honestly. Um, but yeah, yeah I mean. Jr. made some absurd amount of money for those. $34 million. It was like 34 God, And he's barely in the million. fucking movie. I mean, he's in the movie, but he's not. Yeah, he doesn't have a ton but, of screen time in that fucking movie. I mean, yeah, he's, you know, he's, he's worth it. He's, I mean, we we've talked about this on our political podcast that it's it's like if people want to see it and they all want to chip in, you know, their their eight to ten dollars, whatever. Then like, oh, I'm I'm fine with that. I don't think that's oh explosive. no, I I agree. Yeah, I mean, um, I'd, I'd rather see him take it in than the Harvey fucking Weinstein's of the world who make sure. millions off of the movie. You know, but like but, let the let the artist Robert Downey Jr. did something. I think a little bit magical with the character to make it so that like billions of kids across the world are all just like, yep, that, that, I want to be Iron Man. <laughs> you know, yep, I want to be a misanthropic old alcoholic billionaire. Uh, now nah, you want to, they sweat. kids want to be, no, the I know, they, 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 they make the, they make the, no, his the, character arc was, was kind of beautiful in the end. Cause he was always the selfish asshole. Like that was the whole thing where like Captain America was always like, you know, ne- you'll never be the one to make the sacrifice play. And that's I, literally how it's, you know. Yeah, I, I started watching the, the comedy events. comedy series on HBO Vice Principles. And man, if you want to see a show where mm-hmm. the assholes are not lovable, watch that <laughs> show. Because after two episodes, you're like, I can't do this anymore. These are just terrible, terrible racist people. 
Uh, and I don't think the show is self-aware enough to know that they're terrible and racist. I think they're just like, oh, these are level really? assholes, and they're not. They're really not. Yeah, like you've got to have, you know, a, a you know Sergeant Hopper. Uh, Tony Stark character who really is a lovable asshole who's got insecurities and redeeming qualities to to make them real fucking heroes. Otherwise, I don't care. And most that's most a sh- that's a shame. Care. That's a shame because I love Walton Goggins like as an actor. The guy who he's also in Hateful Eight. He's been in a lot of uh, really. He's a he's a great character actor. Yeah. The what's the other guy? He's always got a mullet. Oh, uh, Danny McBride. Oh yeah, yeah. He's he he's actually the 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 best thing about Alien Covenant is yeah you know he's funny the, i like him he's no he's good in that because he's he's yeah. like he's the comedic relief but then you also feel really bad because there's like a really like i think his wife is one of the first people to die spoiler alert in alien covenant and he's got like a really emotional scene where most people is just like pip dead bloody fucking alien gut whatever dead and he's got the only emotional scene in that so when i watched vice principles i was like oh this is gonna be good right no no he's just a fucking piece of shit and he's racist and sexist, and you don't like him. Um, and I'm like, when when do you start? When does he become <laughs> when does he lovable? Make the turn? Yeah, and it doesn't it doesn't happen. And after two episodes, I was like, all right, well, sorry, I gave it a shot. Gave you two <laughs> hours. He's also, um, I think he produced and wrote the new Halloween movie. Danny, like weirdly, huh. he um, so he's like branching out, which I actually enjoyed the new Halloween movie. You know, it's it's. For, yeah, he executive produced the new ho- the, the Halloween twenty eighteen, and he's executive producing the the next two. Mm. Uh, him and his him and his uh, buddy David Gordon Green worked on it together. I think David Gordon Green's the guy who directed Pineapple Express, and he's also directing you know the Halloween movies. So that's eh. there. Like, I enjoyed it enough. You know, it was fine. But um, yeah. in any event, so yeah, uh, we. Where'd we, where would we leave off? So yeah, the the uh, Zoller kills Shana, and then she kills him, and this kind of like you know, uh, interesting scene. Um, and then the last shot we see after they they you know blow up all the Nazis and shoot Hitler's face off, which is super enjoyable, uh, is that the uh, uh, Aldo and uh, Udovich are driving. Uh, Landa to go meet up at the rendezvous point to give him over to the Americans where he's going to, you know, make a surrender and then be transferred and debriefed and et cetera, et cetera. But, um, you know, first of all, uh, Aldo shoots one of the, uh, Landa's accomplices who, you know, Landa bartered, you know, his, essentially his freedom as part of the deal. So Landa's like, you know, they'll, they'll, uh, they'll, you know, uh, kill you for this or they'll hang you for this. He's like, nah, uh, you know, I'll probably get chewed out. I've been chewed out before. I can, I can handle being chewed out. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and and it's funny because there's clearly a different perception about the chain of command. Um, yeah. At least between between Americans and Germans where it's like, Oh, you, you shot a German. Uh, great we don't need we didn't need him we need the other guy <laughs> that other guy just was the driver basically at least as far as we're we're concerned but yeah whereas um, the nazis were so severe and like strict that like even though he obviously that they didn't really need him they probably would have executed him like for do it you know oh <laughs> like uh, yeah well i mean and, and decorum it, at least at that moment 
what I think that's supposed to represent is, of course, you know, you know, you have a very uh, rigid uh, authoritarian fascist mindset of like, you disobeyed your commander's orders and killed this guy. Mm-hmm. You'll be, you'll be turned. And he's like, nah, I'm just, I'm sort of like the, the John Wayne can kind of do whatever he wants <laughs> and get away with it. Cause it's for the sake of, that. you know, America and, and liberating France and whatever. And, and honestly, like you're lucky to get off with this. So I'm going to put fear <laughs> God into you a little bit. Yeah. Um, and then he gives, and, and you you can tell like Aldo Rain, the character, just fucking loves winding up for that speech too, where he's like, "So you know, I when you uh, when you when you get there, I, I suppose you're gonna take off that Nazi uniform, you know?" And they're like, <laughs> "Oh yes, away. of course, of course, I'll never be a Nazi again." He's like, well, "Yeah." So the funny thing is, like, <laughs> Landa is smart enough to know because theoretically, he's never heard the true story of what happens because everyone that's ever come back has said, Oh, I was ambushed. And then they carved my head up. Like not that like, Hey, they let me go. So no one's ever told anyone in, in German command, like, Hey, they told me like, you know, they asked me if I was ever going to take my uniform off. And I said, yes. And then they said, all right, well, we're going to give you something you can't take off. So nobody's ever told Hitler or Landa or anyone else that, but Landa, the character in that moment already realizes where, uh, where, uh, Aldo's going with it and he's and he knows that he's not going to say yes but he knows he can't say no and he knows no matter what he says he's going to carve his fucking head up so he's like oh fuck <laughs> and then he you know and he of course right well and and they show the version of the of that incision where it's already scar tissue and even back then there was enough cosmetic surgery that you could have that removed right so it's not like yeah. it's a brand for life it's more just the pain of, of being, you know, you're not being scalped, but it's sort of like it's it's a version of it. Mutilated, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's not, it, it's painful. You're not cutting off a hand or a finger or anything. Like, it's, you're marking the forehead, so you got to think about it for a while. Uh, yeah. and, and then, you know, probably if you keep your head covered long enough, you can see a cosmetic surgeon and get it removed over the course of, you know, a couple of years of, of, of cosmetic yeah. surgery. But it's still, it's like the least we can do is make sure you don't fucking remember this for a while. And and we know, we know that like so many of these motherfuckers escaped uh, trial or escaped, you know, any accountability by trying to just disappear and, 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 and go into London, like yeah. Brazil and uh, you know, all of our, all of our rocket scientists that we took from Germany. Uh, what, was, what was the real famous Operation guy? Paperclip. That, yeah. There was the guy that, that NASA or not, not NASA. It was prior to NASA, but it was one of the, Early. Well, no, but they did. They were they led to to to, to the to the Apollo mission because they were like heavily oh, involved sure. but in the, our space. But there was program. one guy that uh, was part of the Moon program who was a German scientist who was very Werner von prominent. Braun. There you go. There you go. Yeah. Uh, and, and for a long time, people were just like, uh, he was way up high in the Nazi uh, chain of command. And people had to kind of like go back and be like, oh, yeah, by the way, here in this in this archival footage. Uh, disclaimer, this guy was a like raging fucking Jew hating Nazi. So, um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, welcome to the Smithsonian. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, but no, but like, I think to what you're getting to is like they, with Landa, they kind of almost like dug into almost to his skull. So it was a real fucking severe, you know, like it it was, it it seemed way more brutal than the, uh, the ones he was giving to just the general, I don't know. Uh, I, I, I couldn't measure it. Who knows? Because they don't show the other ones. They don't show the other ones. It's actually They're, the last one. Yeah, they show one. the after effects. Yeah. yeah, they show the, the first time you see it is the uh, 
the very last time. It's uh, sort of implied, but yeah, it, it was. I liked how they filmed it because it definitely made it look like they were going in really fucking deep. But they, it didn't. It looked like a, like an old school uh, like zombie effects thing. We could tell it was like a fake was practical, forehead. yeah. Yeah. And like a like a like a really cheap fake rug because you could hear, see like the individual hair plugs in it. Uh, and <laughs> yeah, it was probably just right. like on a, on an angle that was slightly different than his actual uh, yeah. face. Or it was just it was just literally prosthetic, like put on top of his head. Like, yeah, you know, well, I'm, I'm sure they braced him so they could kind of like hold his head still, put a prosthetic on his forehead so they could dig in at least you know maybe an eighth or a quarter of an inch, and then just had the blood ooze out like old school, you know, seventies zombie flick or whatever but yeah which quentin uh, loves that shit but uh, by the way that was quentin's hand apparently that would doing the carving of, of the swastika Jeez, uh, he just can't let anyone else he can't let anyone he can't let anyone fucking do it no but um so and if anyone's you know, gonna say it, the n-word in this movie i'm gonna say the n-word <laughs> exactly he even gets he even gets a couple n-words in in uh in, in django as like that random fucking australian like slaver farmer or whatever just, but um just can't make a movie without Say the N-word. Uh, but so and and then he ends with you know that famous overhead you know usually it's a trunk shot but in that case it was just uh brad pitt and uh bj uh novak looking down at at landa and he says you know uh i think you, you know Udovich, i think this just might be my my masterpiece or something like that and then the right. credits and then it smash cuts to written directed by Quentin Tarantino, of course. So it's he, like so it's so heavy handed. This is my masterpiece, Quentin Tarantino. Yeah. That was his thesis. But you know what? It is. But also he can never he can't just fucking let it be like he has to say like, yeah, this is the best fucking movie I've ever made. Like he knows it, but he has to fucking say it, which is, I think, a little bit of the reason why a lot of critics were like, fuck you. Like this movie is not as good as you think it is, even though I, I think it's his best movie. I think a lot of people resented the fact that he was telling them that it's his best movie. Like movie critics are very temperamental and they hate being told when they're supposed to like or dislike something. So I, I think there's always like that natural reaction. Cause I think a lot of the initial press on this movie was like, eh, not that good. It's, it's overwrought. It's over bloated. It's too much dialogue. But then I think, you know, as time goes on, people realize that it was, probably his best movie if, if not in the t- in the conversation for well, you know he's movie. obsessed with his filmology right and he uses yeah. that term his filmology like a you know like it's his legacy right and when he does this tongue-in-cheek stuff it doesn't seem like it's coming from like a fun happy place it seems like it's coming from a place of insecurity that like uh, you know, oh, I know I'm the best because this is the best, <laughs> but I'm desperately afraid that my last film wasn't my best. So I have to make another, another, another. So when he says things like, well, I, 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 I'm, I'm going to retire. No, he's not. Because he, a guy that neurotic and, and, and self-obsessed. Yeah. And, and talented is going to constantly think that, oh, wait, I'm going to go back and watch all my films again. Uh, and, and obsess over things I didn't do right and want to make another one. Whereas a normal person is going to go, oh, yeah, that's the best I could make that back in 1994 or 1973 or whatever. And and that that's okay just to exist as legacy, and that's not what's driving my new creative process now. If you're always trying to outdo yourself, that's not a healthy place of, of creative focus, right? You, but, you should be and, and- evolving and changing because that's a natural progression, not because you are 
just obsessively critiquing what you didn't do right in the past. He's yeah. I mean, I think you, you kind of nailed it. I, he's extremely obsessed with his legacy and he's got an amazing legacy as a filmmaker. I mean, he's one of the best modern filmmakers. I, I think that we have like the best modern living filmmakers, but it's, uh, he's also a fucking maniac who can't just let it lie. So I think that's, but, but I mean, who knows if he would be as good of a filmmaker if he wasn't such a neurotic fucking lunatic about all of his movies. And if he didn't make these uh. grand proclamations of like, I, you know, I'm going to retire. Like that's like, he thinks that's like the artistic thing to do is like, I'm going to make 10 movies and then I'm going to retire. But it's like, you know, he doesn't make movies as a living. Like he doesn't like he obviously makes a living from it, but he doesn't, do it for the pay like he's never made a movie for the paycheck you know what i mean like that's which is is kind of admirable in a way but i think it also leads to this this like super bloated self-image that he has of well, this like all right so you remember when that footage came out of when um he put uma thurman thing uma thurman in that car and told her to drive really fast down that road made out of sand they had no clearance on either side. And she's like, I'm not comfortable doing this. And she's like, he, didn't really drive. I don't think she like was, had driven in a long time. Even she she's, she's not a stunt driver. Right. And it's a yeah. road made of sand and he's telling her to go 45 miles an hour on it. And there's fucking like bushes and grass and apparently a tree right, right there. And she crashed into it and just fucking nailed her forehead on, on the, um, on the steering column. If you watch the footage, it's absolutely terrible. And yeah. he said that was the biggest mistake I ever made as a director. I I almost killed her, right? And he, <laughs> he did. almost killed Uma Thurman. Yeah, he did. And when she came out with the story, when she spent, I guess, like ten years trying to get the footage from Harvey Weinstein, when she finally got the footage and Great she guy. put it out, uh, people were so ready to turn on Quentin Tarantino that like he his career was about to be destroyed. And she realized it and she was like, I didn't tell the whole story. You know, Quentin was the guy that helped me get the footage from from Weinstein. And even with him helping me, it took 10 years. Right. Yeah. So she's she fucking saved his ass because people think that Quentin Tarantino was so fucking conceited and and reckless and and self-absorbed that they were going to throw his whole fucking filmography under the bus. Although. and I, I, I don't will think say, that would have been deserved, but that's how nah. much people don't like him because of that. I uh, I will say though, I, I think if anyone's uncancelable, <laughs> I think it's probably Quentin Tarantino. Like he could, it could come out tomorrow that he's like a rapist, and it still probably would be like he wouldn't, he wouldn't, he wouldn't acknowledge it like most, like most people who get quote unquote canceled do. You know what I mean? Like he wouldn't. He wouldn't put out a statement. He would just be like, whatever. I, like, he's I, just I don't such think a fucking, he's that kind of person. I think he just doesn't. He's just he such doesn't. a weird, like other, other world. Like he doesn't fucking seem to be at all concerned with anything other than like, I'm Quentin Tarantino. I make these amazing films. I'm going to tell you at length why I'm such an amazing filmmaker. Like that's all he fucking seems to be. And, and like, I'm going to talk about all these other movies that I love that I vigorously, you know, lift from, for my movies. Sure. Um, well, you know, if you're in charge of a film set, the first concern is the safety of your crew. Second concern is, uh, you know, did we get the shot? And the final concern is the final product, right? Yeah. And and if if you're not there and you're doing, you're making decisions as the director 
that are risking other people's safety, that's not just narcissism. That's, um, you know, you're, you're not considering other people before your craft, right? And they're there to do a job for you. And for all the fun entertainment we have and all the, the value we can drive from it, you have to, as a director, put people's lives and their safety before everything. So, yeah. you know, he, and he's admitted that that was a huge mistake. Uh, he he seems to be generally upset and remorseful about it when he's yeah. talked about it, even in that video when he when he like comes. But, it, but he's still fucking it was his fault. He put her he put her in that situation. But he did seem to realize immediately, like, wow, that was not cool. I shouldn't have done that. And <clears throat> at least he didn't fucking joke about it like John Landis did after he killed oh. that fucking you know the 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 people yeah. on that on, on the Twilight Zone set, we chopped their fucking head off with a helicopter. I mean, geez. Yeah. he still worked after that. He he sure. made Coming to America and Three Amigos after that movie. So like, yeah, and Beverly Hills Cop three. Like he's yeah, that's I yeah. I, I think that speaks to the nature monster. of sort of the the bipolar thing. You know, where the 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 ego is driven by insecurity, where he he realized that he fucked up really bad and then had like a big intro version event where he's like oh my god what did i almost do like at least yeah. he's capable of that <laughs> where, yeah. where someone else might just try to deny it outright and just keep on making the same mistake until people literally like lose their fucking heads yeah yeah well i think that's a lot of people don't like john landis and i think that's part of the reason why he hasn't worked in years i mean you know he, he made movies in the 80s but i think after the 80s people are like yeah this is just what like what most people who've made a lot of like really famous movies like blues brothers, you know, Beverly Hills cop coming to America would be given a million chances to get it right. Like if they had a couple of like bad, you know, movies, but no, I like someone like John Landis, who's such a bastard, like nobody wanted to give him the benefit of the doubt and give him another, you know, a couple like he had like one bad movie. They're like, all right, you're done. You're in Hollywood jail forever. We, we <laughs> it was like just waiting for the, for the chance to be like, yeah, fuck you. You know, well, it's crazy to, to me that, you know, a guy like Francis Ford Coppola kind of stopped making big movies a long time ago, but he still makes movies. By and large, they're not very good because he's still sort of experimenting. Um, but still, you know, people don't want to finance his stuff. Whereas, you know, Woody Allen can still get a fucking new movie made every oh every other year. And I don't know where he gets him screened at, but somebody's paying for him. Somebody's financing him. And even if you don't fucking believe this shit, even if you think he's just creepy and not an actual pedophile, which I don't know, whatever. You I know, mean, it's kind of indisputable uh, that he, he's, you know, a, a pedophile. Well, or some some form of a. Let's we'll just know. go with you know he groomed a, a young woman that he then married yeah. and he's been faithful. It, to. It's he, it's it's incredibly whatever. creepy one way or whatever. Another, yeah, yeah, he didn't. Sure. Did, I don't. I don't want to, I'm not saying anything, but like at a certain point, don't you just get your, your, your filmmaker card taken away where, where it's like, okay, Annie Hall, you know, Manhattan. Okay. But like, you're not allowed to make new shit, Woody. Sorry. See, but like Hollywood's incredibly uh, shallow in that if you make a good movie and if you keep making good movies, they'll forgive the most heinous behavior in the world. Like you could fucking kill somebody. But he's not. He's not even making good movies. So what's he getting excused for? Well, I mean, I haven't seen any of his. Re- Apparently, like movie, like Blue Valentine, like movies like that have gotten good reviews. Like I haven't seen them. I don't know. I'm what? not really super. He didn't make Blue like, Valentine. What are you talking about? Or um, what's that movie he made? Or uh, the movie with fucking uh Owen Wilson that he made? Oh, I don't know. It's not Blue Valentine. That was something. Uh, in, uh, 
something in power. I don't know, whatever. But like he, some of his recent movies have gotten like good reviews. So I think, oh, Midnight in Paris. I don't know why I thought Blue Valentine. Uh, oh no, Blue Jasmine he made in 2013. That's what I was thinking of. Um, yeah. Midnight in Paris, like movies that have gotten, you know, uh, good reviews, like Blue, like Midnight in Paris is 93% on Rotten Tomatoes. So like if you make a movie that people like, they'll forgive the most heinous, I'm not saying that him, but like they'll forgive anything. Now, if you make a couple shitty movies, they'll they'll throw you aside. But like Hollywood's very uh, vulturous in that sense. Like they're I not guess you're gonna hire away. the right PR people. Who knows? But yeah, yeah, that that also you know. But uh, you know who knows? <laughs> they give Roman Plansky a fucking uh, lifetime achievement award. So you know whatever that's worth. Well, like w- many he's years not after, pick that up anytime soon. But. <laughs> Yeah, so they're they're not super uh, super rigid about about any kind of heinous acts as long sure. as you're a talented well, filmmaker. D- just to wrap up this ragging on Quentin thing, I don't for a minute uh, want to compare him to Woody Allen or um, no, no, of course uh, not. You know, but still, like the the there's there's issues with him as a person that I find testable, uh, and sure. some of that goes along with being a, an artiste uh, of you know. A, a, craftsman of cinema and other parts of it are just unnecessary watch a watch any uh you know like press junket thing with quentin on stage with like a bunch of the actors in the film and like watch how uncomfortable all the actors are (laughs) being up there when he says something really fucking awful which he constantly does and it's just like quentin if for nobody else like think of your actors up there with you he doesn't think of his 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 crew or his actors as a team it's just here. It's the me show. And these people are lucky to be here. Uh, I, I, you know, he rarely thanks anyone. He just congratulates himself. So as much as I enjoy this film as other works, most of them, especially death proof, I just, I find him as a person, uh, very difficult to take in. Yeah, no, that that's, that's fair. And I, I, I agree to an extent. Um, Yeah. Yeah, I certainly wouldn't want to fucking hang out with him, like, you know, for any extended period of time. I'd love to pick his brain about film, but I, I imagine that would be a conversation I'd regret starting and I'd like be yeah. looking for an escape seven hours later, you know? Oh, it, I, I would love to hear him talk about other people's films. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. No, but but even it's that, just, he would fucking get you on a rabbit book. hole for, well, you know. Okay, that that's fine. His observations about other people's stuff, that's that's where I think he's, you know, his but, intelligence really shines. It's, it's hearing him talk about himself <laughs> and his own movies that he can't stop himself. It just, just somebody depression. He can't, he just goes off the deep end. Somebody, I think it was Kevin Smith. Somebody told a story about watching a movie with Quentin. He was like at a Hollywood party, like, you know, some LA party. I think it was, I'm pretty sure it was Kevin Smith. And he went into a room and he found Quentin in there alone watching movies. So he like sits with him and Tarantino puts on this movie and immediately like turns to him and starts telling him like a million fucking factoids about the movie and the way it was made. Like he's like, he's the kind of guy who will like put a movie on for you and never shut the fuck up and just watch your reaction the entire time. and be like, Oh my God, do you know, in this scene that the, that the director, you know, right before they shouted action, shot a gun offset to like, he's like one of those kinds of guys who just like it is insufferable to watch a movie with. So that's what I mean by like, if you start a conversation with them, even about other people's movies, you'd be like, shut the fuck up. Like, just please, please. I, I can't, I can't. Well, didn't anymore. he, didn't he have like a real famous scene in, in, in someone else's film 
as the guy that corners people at parties to regale them with facts <laughs> about movies. Do you recall Did this? He? I don't know. I, I, I'm yeah, sure he, it's, I, it's, I, in, I, it's in something where he, it's like, he's, I, I think it, it was some movie that came out shortly after he became a, a name in Hollywood. Yeah, You know, I, it's, and he's, you just basically playing like an eccentric guy in a robe at a party who's trying to corner people be like, Oh, did you know this movie? And you know, just like, I can, I can almost, I can literally almost picture it. Yeah. I, I'm trying to think of what movie it was, but I can almost picture it. But, um, yeah. So yeah, he's, he's an interesting character, uh, for sure. Um, but anyway, yeah. So, well, we are at the two hour and seven minute mark, 13 seconds. I think (laughs) we have said everything we can about the auteur and his work and glorious bastards. And yeah, I think, I think so too. So we uh, will wrap this up, but, uh, love this movie you know uh five out of five hammer and sickles for me i don't know about you i give it four and a half yeah i mean that's that's very respectable death proof is my favorite for other reasons but uh this was a hard movie i think for anyone to make to hit the right you know to kind of thread the needle between humor uh holocaust revenge and being very poignant uh, especially the first 20 minutes where you really like, you know, <laughs> the, the, every time you see her run out of that house, you should cry. Right. doesn't matter who you are. Yeah. You should cry. Right. Um, and you should also probably cry again when she gets revenge, even though she's, you know, it's, it's po- post mortem revenge. Uh, yeah. that, that, that catharsis is there for a reason because it was one of the worst things that ever happened in our history, at least in, you know, our, I say our, our history, I wasn't alive then, but let's, let's say, you know, the last hundred years of our history, one of the worst things that's ever happened. Yeah, no, absolutely. And yeah. And so, you know, that, and those moments really worked. And I think like you're saying in, in, in lesser hands, it, it, it would have just not come together. There's just too many disparate elements for it to come together, but it uh, worked. So, uh, yeah. Maybe we should do, uh, instead of hammer and sickles, we should do uh, bloody baseball bats or, uh, <laughs> or like, uh, not, you know, five well, out of five Nazi scalps. How about that? How about we'll do five uh, out of five Nazi five scalps? Five out of five Nazi scalps. Yeah. The one thing this film doesn't do is recognize the huge role that communists, uh, communist Soviet Union played in, in defeating Nazis in real life. Yeah. That's uh, true. So maybe, maybe we, we could do, uh, you know, the, the numbering, system is the number of scalps scalped by sickles <laughs> and the number of brains bashed in by hammers so yeah i, yeah. I mean I, I gave it four out of five honestly I, I you know i like to rate things in their context so out of all his films i would say death proof is like probably like a 4.9 and this is like a 4.5 glorious bastards yeah i wouldn't rate i wouldn't rank that through stuff i think it's very good but like i would i would have trouble ranking it up that high but it's but you know it's give, give um, it another shot go back and yeah. watch it again just just like take into account some of those things that i mentioned tonight uh and and see where you find it after yeah yeah uh so that's inglorious bastards uh if you <laughs> like this uh you should check out our main show where we talk politics every week move left idiots in the same feed that you're getting this in uh, we uh, have an episode typically every Thursday night, and uh, this coming week, if you're listening to this in real time, we'll be covering the uh, next round of primary debates because those are uh, tomorrow and Wednesday. So, uh, oh shit, yeah, 
That's uh, that's gonna be a, another shit show of epic proportions. Delaney Hickenlooper. It's gonna be oh these these rising stars that have ascended to two percent in the primary. It's gonna be exciting. Kamala's amazing plan to give like fifteen people uh, student loan relief uh, in the next thirty years. So that's that's, that's exciting. Right. That's gonna be great. Um, uh, and some guy named um, Burn Burn Bernie. I don't know. Bernard, I, Bernard. So he's something. A, I, I think he's. he's a, I really he's haven't heard much about maybe? him in the in the news because I, you know, I mean, I watch the news every day and I never hear about him. So uh, I can only presume he's going to drop out soon. So you'd yeah, be forgiven we'll, for thinking that he's not in the last place. Uh, yeah, if you've watched uh, <laughs> CNN and MSNBC's coverage of him, but uh, no, he's not. And uh, yeah, so come check out our our political cast, Move Left Idiots, uh, and. We will see you next time. Uh, we will see you next week, actually, for Sorry to Bother You. Uh, that's something we recorded, and we're going to be putting out uh, probably early next week, if not this weekend. So keep an eye out for that. Uh, come for our main show if you want to support the show. You can rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. You can follow us on SoundCloud, soundcloud.com slash move left. Facebook.com slash move left idiots if you want to go and chat with us over there. There's a lot of... Uh, memes and things posted uh, on top of just the episodes that we post there. Uh, you can uh, become a Patreon if you want to support the show that way. Uh, Patreon.com slash move left idiots. Uh, or no, excuse me. Patreon.com slash move left. Uh, if you want to pick up any merch, you can do that at tinyurl.com slash move left merch. Uh, I am on Twitter at move underscore left. I'm on Twitter at smut collector. Yeah, and we will see you next time.
ageless heart that can never mend His tears can never dry Judgment made can never bend See these eyes so green I can stare for a thousand years Just be still with me So wouldn't believe what I've 